Welcome to a new episode of the Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. This is your go-to sport fishing podcast, where we will cover all things from fishing, boats, tackle, and anything else saltwater related. Well done, gentlemen. Every day is an adventure on the water. We'll be sharing our experiences, stories, tips, and passion for fishing. Gonna need a bigger boat. Oh, think bigger, my friend. Think bigger. Here is your host, Captain Ricky Wheeler. Hi, everyone. Here we are, episode 31 of the Salt Water Euphoria podcast. I'm really excited to bring you this one. It will be my last one of the year. Uh, we were coming into Christmas out in the holidays here, so I just wanted to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, and thanks for listening to this podcast. And if you like it that much, please spread the word, tell others about it. I greatly appreciate it. So what's been going on in my world is just boat hustle. Boat hustle and boat shuffle. <laughs> We're hustling to get the, the 38 Topaz ready to go to head south to get in position to begin its full refit in inside and out. And big thanks to John and the, the good people at Forked River Diesel for getting her all together. Her coming six CTAs ran great all the way down the beach for me and my mate Matt. We ran down, ran through Oregon Inlet, through the back of Pamlico Sound to Moorhead City, and then went down from there to Masonboro Inlet, through the back, and then all the way up to Cape Fear Boatworks, where it got hauled out, and will be trailered to Mark at Envy Boats, and it will live in his shop for at least the next half a year. If you follow me on Instagram, at Captain Ricky Wheeler, I'll be posting plenty of my story of the process, if you enjoy that kind of stuff, and I will... Start keeping it in one of my saved stories as well, so you can refer back if you're interested. You can go through from start to finish, and I'll, I'll get that up here soon. So keep an eye out for that, and also keep up with us here at Solar Euphoria. I'll keep up a little better this year on the Instagram page, and if you have anybody that you feel like I should have on the show, please reach out to us at podcast at saltwatereuphoria.com. In the middle of doing all that with Topaz, also was working on Euphoria. I did a lot of boat touch-ups, paint work, varnish work, and just going through every single wire throughout every single build to make sure we're good to go for our 2024 season and the upcoming long boat moves. So that was huge. And also the biggest thing was we're waiting on parts for transmission rebuild and Good, big thanks to Authority Propulsion for getting that done for me, and we got it in, and we are now, I'm actually currently sitting in Moorhead City as I'm recording this, and we're just waiting out a blow day and doing oil changes and such as that, but anyway, we're good to go here, got everything together, and heading south, going to get this boat in Charleston for the holidays, and then uh, immediately in the new year, head to the Bahamas, and then do some wahoo fishing, and from there, go to the Dominican Republic for the spring white marlin bite. Well, if you're looking for a little vacation to get out of the cold, reach out to me. Love to have you down there fishing with us in the DR. Looking forward to a really good season there. I really, really enjoy fishing in the Dominican Republic, and that white marlin bite in the spring is just something special. And it uh, just reminds me of you know what what it used to be fishing in New Jersey when a fish came in the 30, 40, 50 fathoms. It was pretty awesome fishing. It was fun to fish structure for white marlin, and also lots of mahi in the mix. So it's pretty cool. Before we jump into our episode here, I just wanted to mention that I am now a yacht broker and super excited about it. And I did just get a listing for a 35 Cabo Express. It's a 2004. It's a great little boat. It's actually currently located in Grenada. And 
It's kind of, if you're looking for a 35 Cabo, you're, you're not going to find a much better deal. This one is Cat 3126 engines. It's listed for $219,000, which you'll see if you do your homework is, is much lower. And the owners understand that it is in a foreign location, which can be somewhat hard to get the boat out of. But honestly, it's really not. I've spent so much time down there, and I, I can help you every step of the way. And not to mention, we're, they're coming into their peak bill fishing season down there along with big tunas so it's it's a great little boat if you're interested please reach out to me ricky wheeler at unitedyacht.com i'd love to tell you more about this vessel if it's what you're looking for also like i did in the last episode episode 30 since i became a yacht broker i am doing a top yacht section that if you are interested stay tuned if you like to talk about boats hear about boats and hear about what's out there in the market that i think are great deals Make sure you stick around at the end and I'll go through that and I will also take all those boats and put them on my Instagram page at Captain Ricky Wheeler in my story and I'll also go into my save story under Top Yachts. So if you're interested in that, please stick around and listen to that. So on this episode, I have a gentleman who has spent a lot of time in the South Pacific and also Kona and his story is a pretty awesome one. He, he has definitely fished some amazing locations that I can only dream of fishing, I've heard. Very few stories from this sector of the world because there's very few people that go there. But he spent a lot of time fishing in Samoa and also Vanuatu. He currently is an owner-operator of a boat called the Benchmark, and he is running charters out of Kona, one of the most fabled lands when it comes to catching big blue marlin. A lot of you might know him as Grandin Marlin on Instagram, or a lot of you might know him from his YouTube series that he partnered with Marlin Magazine on that's called Visions of Granders. And he's just an all-around great guy. I really enjoyed talking to him. Amazing stories. This is a really, really good one. I'd like to introduce to you, Chris Donato. How you doing? Good. How are you? Great, man. Stoked you to hop on here with me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm glad I was able to make it happen here. Well, let's jump into it. So, yeah. For people that don't know you, explain who you are, where you're from, and, and let's let's talk about your beginnings. I know you, okay. you grew up on the East Coast, so let's let's dive into that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I was born in New Jersey. Um, I grew up here. Uh, my parents weren't real into fishing. I don't know where I I found the bug. You know, it just it just hit me. You know, I started off just fishing when I was a kid anywhere I could. I would go down to like, there's like a pier down here in Fairhaven. I would just go down there and fish off the pier as a little kid and uh, like in the in the rivers and stuff like that. And then I would go right. bass fishing, catch largemouth bass. And then my parents always had a place in Florida. Um, they had like a condo there. And so we would, they would drag us there when we were kids and like, as a kid getting pulled to Florida, it's not the same as like going out, you know? So it was like, it was cool, but I was kind of like, you know, how much time can we spend at the beach and you know, whatever. So, um, I started getting into fishing there too. So like as much as I could, I would just go down to the intercoastal and just, my parents would drop me. I would just sit there, go under the bridges, catch whatever I could. Yeah. I was just, I was just crazy about fishing, man. Any, any kind of fish, whatever it was, it wasn't just biased towards salt water, dude. So, um, <laughs> They actually ended up, they had a friend uh, that ran a charter boat. They would drop me off with the guy sometimes and he would, I would go out and fish and like check it out. And then, um, you know, it was like, we were going bottom fishing for like uh, Amber Jacks and stuff like this. And I was tiny. I was super young. So I was stoked, man. I was catching Amber Jacks. (laughs) I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. So it just progressed from there, man. It just was like something that never left my blood. And, uh, you know, I've kind of always been like ocean oriented. So it was like, 
you know, the surfing kind of took me away from fishing a little bit, like when I was like in high school and stuff, but I got right back into it. And, uh, yeah, I just, it just was a gradual progression. And then, um, you know, Florida was kind of where I would do a lot of the fishing. I'd fish out of there, like that area where sailfish Marina is West Palm kind of zone, or right. I was in West Palm, so Palm beach zone. And then, uh, yeah, I just, uh, wasn't really i mean it was like sailfish and uh back then we'd fish for swordfish at night so that was like my closest thing to like a blue marlin you know like the, my closest oh, yeah. thing, real animal you know and so once i started getting into sword sword fishing at night i was like man this is awesome you know like sails are fun on light tackle but once you catch like you know 20 30 of those things you're like okay what's that you know what i mean like <laughs> so the swordfish that bug got me pretty good and uh i uh, i fell into that and then i had a buddy actually from from jersey that um was really into marlin fishing as well and he kind of like kind of got me fired up on that um nick laviola you might know nick i don't yeah. know yeah yeah. Um, so he was a buddy of mine and and a couple other friends, whatever. But like he was one 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 that uh a buddy of mine that had been really, really already into Marlin fishing. And so he kind of kind of got me excited about that. And then uh yeah, it just it just was a gradual progression. Um and what ended up happening, I ended up living in Florida for a while out of college. I went down there. I kind of just didn't know what I was gonna do. And at the time right. I had already gotten involved in that surf resort um that me and my brother have down there in western samoa um so yeah so that's kind of how that come to be drawing me out of the east coast and got me into kind of traveling more and getting around so i went there oh i must have been about 16 or 17 uh i was just travel i would did, did a lot of traveling i also would do um, it wasn't always fishing too. Like in the summers, um, I, I did a few things where I worked on some sailboats and like traveled around in different areas and just would like go and like, kind of like, they're like things you could sign up for as like a younger kid. And, uh, like, obviously there's no paying it, but it was just experience. And right. so like, I got really into a lot of traveling that way. Like I, I worked on a boat that went and fit, um, didn't fish it, it sailed all around the Marquesas and French Polynesia. And I got to check that. And then, I totally fell in love with Polynesia there. That's um, sick. So I did <laughs> I'm, that. I'm and yeah, it was fucking, it was awesome, man. Um, I did that. I did another one around the Galapagos. Like, did just tried to get out there. I was like, you know, growing up on the East Coast. So it was like any chance I could to see different types of the world. So I was doing that a lot when I was younger, but I was, um, how'd you find you know, that stuff? I mean, for anybody looking, I mean, how would you um, today? Man, I mean, nowadays, I guarantee you probably there's probably all kinds of like sailing forums, or, you know, Google or whatever it was. Um, I saw a flyer somewhere at my, at my school or something <laughs> like that. And uh, yeah, just went on to it. And it was just like a program. And then they had things everywhere. And it was like it was like a camp kind of deal. But like you would work as a crew. And um, it was yeah, it was awesome. It was it was a really cool experience. I think it was uh was something that I would definitely recommend to people to do if you want. How to long out. do they go for? I guess. Each um, I guess each each session's a little bit different. However, you want to do it, right? Like the bigger ones, but uh, like man, I think the the one in Tahiti was like I want to say like almost two months. Yeah, around. Oh wow. Like that. Yeah, but I think most time. of them are probably at least a month. You know, like you kind of got to 
go out there and put the time in because you're going to need to learn some stuff. But if you're going to go that far, you might as well put the time in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure they're still doing the, the these things guaranteed all over. But anyhow, yeah. So I, you know, kind of fell in love with the South Pacific then, but um, I was obviously surfing a lot and um, I would go to Panama and all these different places that were easy to get to from the East coast. Costa Rica was a lot of, I'd go there to surf a lot. Yeah. I'd go with Rick's father. <laughs> I wasn't like old enough to really like travel by myself yet, I guess. So I'd go with him and I had a trip booked to go to Panama one year and there was like a gnarly storm that came through and I had to cancel the trip. And my, my friend who owns, um, who's actually on partners with as well. It's me and my brother and my friend, Sean Murphy, we're, we're all partners in the, um, the surf resort down there in Samoa, but he owned a, uh, book, a travel agency that was set up just for surfers. It's called waterways travel. And he was like oh, the yeah, first, first guys to do it. Yeah. So okay. Sean set that up and like his parents were travel agents. And so he was like falling into that travel agency thing and he was a big surfer. And so he was like, well, no one's doing it for surfing. And back then it was hard. Like nowadays you just jump on my computer and you yeah. can book a trip. It's so easy. Anybody can do it. You just go on, book, find your hotel, do this, do that. Back then, it was like, like I feel like travel agents are like a thing. Like kids don't even know what they are nowadays. Like people don't use travel <laughs> agents really. Like yeah, not really. I, yeah, like occasionally I'll have a travel agent call me about a charter, and I'll be like, "Geez, you you guys are a thing still." Like people book through travel agents and stuff. But so back then, especially for surf trips, the travel agency was a big thing because. You, they would set everything up and give you a package rate, whatever. It so is anyway, pretty nice though. It's cool that they had like what they what yeah. they could do back then was kind of made it easy for you. And, and I guess it's why they yeah. still do exist. The surfing thing, I think it makes a lot of sense, a travel agency for sure. Yeah. Because some of these places, especially like if you're going to Indonesia and stuff, or if you're going to like Papua New Guinea, or you're going to something like they still thrive. Like a lot of our business comes through these travel agent surf travel companies uh -huh. because it's it is kind of hard to go to remote spots you don't know what you're getting into you don't know the rules unless you, you go with somebody that's been like that's why i never exactly. further than like puerto rico costa rica and that, that was the yeah. extent of my surf trips growing up i mean <laughs> we wouldn't go any yeah. further my brother and i always want to do like a boat trip somewhere in the south pacific but we were like where we don't know what to do yeah, where to go. right yeah so it does make sense i mean there's definitely still there's there's still a need for that um and uh yeah, it was cool, but he he did well, and um, he kind of led me to a lot, lot of different waves that I would have never known about. Sean Sean like put it out there, so that's how I ended up in Samoa was through Sean. So I was I was supposed to go to Panama. There was a storm. I was like, man, I'm not gonna make it. I'm bummed. He's like, dude. He's like, go down. You like I know you like like really heavy slabby barreling waves. He's like, go down to Samoa. He's like, there's this back then what they had. There was like a youth like a, uh, I think it might've been the, like the local Samoans had set it up. I th think it was through like the Mormon church or something or some church. Anyways, there was like a, they'd set some huts up on this area of property. And in front of it was the waves we now call Solani right and left. The village there is called Solani, Solani, um, Solani village. So there was like some accommodation there and Sean had had a buddy that had gone down there and was like, they were trying to set up like a, a surf camp type thing there. And um, it was super, super basic, like no bathrooms in the rooms, the bath, there was like a bathroom block down a ways, no air conditioning, no, like just a fan, 
um every time you went you would pretty much guarantee at least like one or two days you'd be sick like it was it was gnarly man but uh i went down there yeah that that first time i was like i think i was like 17 or something and i scored and the waves were like insane there was nobody there i couldn't believe it i'm like what in this is real like i'm this is like stuff i read in magazines as a kid like this is unbelievable and so I kept going back when I couldn't. It ended up just becoming like my little secret. I would just go there when I could. They had an issue where they ran into a, a situation where the government was talking about putting a bridge right through where the the surf camp that was there. So they right. uh so they ended up getting it. Sean ended up getting um that those those huts that had been used for that like Mormon church camp or whatever. And they turned it into like he got a hold of it and turned it into a little bit of a surf camp kind of. Um, cool. That was yeah, and that was how I got down there. But um anyways, they were government was talking about putting a bridge in. They had all these issues. When they went down there, he never even like signed a lease with the village. He just like it was like on reef like land that they just like that was underwater at certain times, like under super high tides, it would flood through. It was like, it's right on the edge of a river. Uh-huh. Uh, so it had all kinds of issues, man. And uh, they're pretty well over it. So I was spending a lot of time there and I was like, kind of tried to di- did my research on what was going on. And when that bridge situation came in, they were basically like, all right, well, we're done here, you know? Yeah. And uh, I went and got a lawyer and um, down there in Samoa and, uh, a friend of mine that's Samoan, his dad is a really good lawyer there. So I sat down with him and we went over some stuff and I just thought, you know, what are the logistics of me getting involved in this and trying to set it up right? Like get a proper lease, figure this out. There was a land dispute. There were like two different families saying like, we actually own this land. We own this land. So there was like all this money that the way it works down there, when you lease property, you don't just pay the family right away. It goes into like a, like a holding account and the government pays the family. So the wow. lands and title courts will pay the money out to the different fa- to whatever family owns that land. So because there was a dispute between these two families, there's like a large chunk of cash sitting in this uh, lands and title thing. So they were going to go to court over it. And it was like, so, you know, both families, neither one had made any money. So they were like kind of getting pissed off about the whole thing. So it was like, if this one family won, they were like farther away than Solani village. Then it was going to be a whole nightmare because then Solani village was going to be pissed off. And we are like joined with Solani village. So I kind of had to do my research on who was actually going to win this and how we could make it. So Solani, the village of Solani would end up winning this. And, you know, we would be working with them hand in hand. Cause right. you really kind of have to, if you're not, you know, you're not a Samoan like born and raised there. So that makes sense. Um, yeah. So long story short, man, basically did all the research on it, saw the opportunity that um, we could make this thing happen. So I came in and basically bought in at like a like crazy cheap amount of money to to <laughs> own something, which like anyone on paper would be like, you're a moron. What like this is this should cost you, f- you know, five dollars. You have not it's going to disappear possibly. But luckily it did John. <laughs> stayed in as a minor shareholder. Um, and I went all in and, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, long story short, the, everything went good. We got the bridge thing moved. It didn't happen. Uh, the Sony village won the lands and title case. Um, they got the money and everything worked from there and it just started building up. So I was spending a lot of time down there. So, um, so I ended up 
getting out of college and kind of not knowing what to do with my life. And I was just fishing and I just thought I was going to probably just work out of Florida and fish out of Florida and, you know, the Bahamas and do that whole deal. Right. Uh, and then uh, I was just trying to get down to Samoa when I could. So I would go down there like in the uh, in the winters and stuff when I could get down there or in the summers, whatever, spend more and more time. And then I started bringing my fishing gear down there and I'd bring like my swordfish stuff as all the heavy tackle I had. So I'd bring right. like 50, I think I had an 80, um, but it was mostly like 50s and 30s. And when I wasn't surfing, we had little boats because we have to go out to the reef pass. So we had like Mexican style, like Ponga boats kind of okay. deals outwards on them. So I would take those out. And then when we weren't surfing, I'd grab one, I'd go out and I'd, I'd set up a little lure spread, you know, just a couple flat lines. And I was getting smoked. Like I was catching big ahis and like, man, I was, I, I was like, what the heck? Like every day we're getting several Marlin bites, like just driving around on this little skiff. So I was like, <laughs> man, this is where I need to be, you know, like, screw That's this. Cool. yeah, I mean, I can surf and fish and so that progressed into me ending up getting uh um getting rid of everything I had in America. I got a 31 Ocean Master, little center oh, yeah. center console, yeah. Yep, <laughs> and sent it down there and uh put it how, uh, on, before you go further, how did you send it down there? How did you get it there? Okay. Yeah, so back then you could actually drive those things into like a 40 foot container on a trailer. Oh, now cool. you can't nowadays they make you cradle i think everything but back then i actually was able to get a container drive it in on a uh on a trailer and uh you know break it down so it was just a flat you know whatever and put it in and so basically i got my truck trailer everything down there wow um, and uh yeah i can't remember if we ended up having to do two two trailers uh two containers man it was a while back but I do remember it didn't cost, it was like nothing compared to what it costs now to ship stuff yeah, down there. I bet. couldn't believe it. It was cheap, man. Um, How did you launch that thing? And I'm sure it's a boat ramp. No, there was boat ramps in town. Really? There ramps okay. in yeah, they even have a harbor over there. They have like a, a marina, which was garbage. Well, it still is kind of garbage, but it was like had nothing in it back then. But then right. they ended up actually putting in floating docks down the road. But they okay. did have. They did have boat ramps and stuff. And there are guys down there, someone guys with like skiffs and stuff, and they go out and catch like meat fish and go out and catch tunas and mahi oh, cool. and stuff like that. Right. So there were guys fishing there, but just not I don't really want to deal with Marlin much because it's just they would always say, like, oh, we don't play with our food, you know. Like they just want to <laughs> eat, you know, they want to catch yeah. food, tunas, and they didn't really have the tackle or whatever. So um, but there is boat ramp. So we would launch it. We launched it down at that boat ramp there, okay. in town, which is an RPM and then drove it around. But, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty easy to get it there. I think what I, I think I sent it <clears throat> from Florida and it went maybe to like Long Beach and okay. went on another ship from Long Beach to Samoa. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really, that was an easy one. Um, and so then, uh, you know, just dealing with customs when it got there is a pain, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, man, you could do a lot over there with, uh, some fresh fish and a couple boxes of chocolates and, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a lot different now. Um, yeah, I'm know, sure. 
really the bill of sale it, it can be whatever so you know yeah. uh so it worked out cool man and then we got the center console over there and we drove it around and set it up out of the resort and we would do fishing trips out of the resort <laughs> so i started running cool. charters um so basically that's kind of when the surf resort also had a fishing option and the only issue i would run in with that was i wasn't getting a lot of people strictly coming to fish they would be like on a surf trip and they would want to fish while they were there and the deal there is i mean like the surf is good so much like it's hard to go out and like be like yeah i'm just not going to surf tomorrow let's go fish all day you know yeah and you will so, surf you're not going yeah. to stop <laughs> and you're like unless you're like out the stops and you can't handle oh, it anymore man. you need a day off <laughs> yeah so that was about the only times i'd get like a full day of fishing it with charters was like if they were just worn out and they're like let's yeah. go but uh but yeah you know i built a little bit of a uh started building a little clientele through australia and new zealand that's cool yeah so i started to kind of build that charter industry up a little bit and i uh, got really good friends back then with um the guy that ran uh, new zealand fishing news and he helped me out um grant dixon he helped me out get a lot of charters through them and we did a couple magazine trips and um it was fun man but it was a learning curve because it, the boat <clears throat> Do you, you're you're only capable of so much kind of with those outboards in terms of like big fish um how much pressure you can unless you just put it in the rod holder or something you know if you're trying to right. catch them igfa you're kind of limited in some in some ways it's you just a, have a very good angler that's great yeah. and even still that can end poorly. yeah <laughs> and and i mean you're, you're like almost limited you know we put a chair in it uh we end up putting a chair in the back and uh it works, but you're just like, you're almost better just going full stand up in those center consoles. But like, there's not a lot of people that can handle stand up heavy tackle, man. It's just like, I've met a few people and that's it that really can do it. So we were limited and, um, you know, I caught some good fish, um, but there was, there was limitations and we had one that was, I mean, maybe it wasn't a grander, but it was definitely over 800 and uh, we fought this thing for a long time on an 80 and uh it just kind of went down and died on us and um it was really hard to plane it up with the outboards and we were just getting our butt kicked it started getting dark we yeah, ended that up pass like that reef pass Did it's it nasty, in the dark or it's pretty tough you don't yeah. you can't do it in the dark it's pretty it's it's like a big dog leg and uh yeah it, there's not a lot of room for error you'll be up on reef so <laughs> We ended up breaking this fish off in the middle of the night. And yeah, we, I remember I was just so tired and worn out and just like so frustrated. I just like trimmed the engines up and just aimed Great. for what I thought was the freaking, was the, <laughs> was the pass and just went through and. Did you have a good plotter back then at least? Or was the. Yeah. I mean, good enough. Good enough but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty good. I, I had a rough idea what I, where I was going to be going yeah. through, but um, if, if, uh, if the tide's high enough, and you trim your engines on a boat like that, you should be okay, you know. Okay. But when I started running the bigger boats through it, yeah, there's no, you can't screw around there. You'll hit. Yeah, there's a few, there's a few spots you just, you, you definitely could, could smack if you screwed up. But uh, well, that was how tackle for down there. Like, how, how were you able to keep <laughs> up with tackle and fresh line? Like, I, I know oh, you're not man. getting it there back then. No, no, you still can barely get anything there. You'd have to bring it in, and so. I would have people bring it down with them. Yeah. It's... I needed something. I would be like, Hey, can you throw, I'll, I'll order this, 
send it to your house and you could bring, can you bring it down with you? Right. And so I would just do that. Uh, but it was tough, man. You have to bring everything you need in there. And the same with boat parts, electronic, yeah. this, uh, I mean, you're just on your own. Um, and so that's always a frustrating thing. I mean, that's the main reason I'm still not out fishing all those spots and doing the remote thing, because for me, that was like when the bug bit me about like fishing remoteness, you know, then I, I, I started doing that, but then I was like, man, there's all these other spots that I'd love to get to, but I can't on the center console. Right. Right. Um, How long did you have the center console there for? I reckon, I reckon we probably two or two to three years. I, I, I think somewhere around that. Yeah. Did you have outriggers uh, on that one? Mm -hmm. or, yeah. 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 We put riggers on a proper spread then. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to pull a proper spread. We had riggers on it. We had a little tower and I would actually drive from up in the tower. Cool. Um, it was actually a pretty badass little boat. They're um, cool boats. It was cool, man. I mean, I think about it now. I probably shouldn't have got rid of it. It had been a sick little like scouting uh surfing book because i don't even fish down in samoa anymore when i go there i just want to i just want to surf you know i'm just <laughs> I, I fish every day back home like i just want to go down there and surf but it would be fun to have that little boat down there i'd probably put a couple electric reels on it and just go out and fish for fun and catch ahis and whatever you know and <laughs> and go find little surf spots but go commercial um, fish eventually yeah just go commercial like the boys do in kona and stuff and just go commercial tuna fish maybe put a green stick on it you know you have I wahoos about, there too, or not really? Just just ahi. Yeah, yeah, heaps of yeah. wahoos. Yeah, oh yeah, awesome. but uh, yeah, yeah, they're all pretty close to the reef, though. You didn't. Um, you know, we would get deep water ones, but but if you, there's a certain area that you'd get in on, and you could get a lot of wahoos, and even dog tooth tunas too. They're dog tooth in there as well. That's pretty cool. Always they're pretty cool. Them. Yeah, they're fun, man. Yeah, so that was kind of that, and then I kind of moved into bigger boats and was able to sell that boat and then get a, uh, a 43 foot Cabo, which was the boat I ran down there for a large part of time. Um, and actually took that down through Fiji and then up into Vanuatu and stuff. But the 43 Cabo was, um, was a lot bigger of an ordeal to try and get to Samoa. That one was in Florida and I actually had a company, I think it was called Yacht Path. So I linked up with a, a a buddy of mine who actually has like a really famous YouTube show now. It's called Deer Meat for Dinner. Like this kid, Robert Arrington. Okay. Yeah. So I linked up with Robert and uh and basically he was like, Man, I want to get down there and fish. And we were talking about how we could try and get a better boat down there and whatever, this and that. And he was able to use he's always just been like connected with a lot of people in the industry and stuff. Um, and he used a lot of contacts to try and get some sponsors. At the time, there was a fishing show called uh Real Adventures. He had the the definite connections, but you know, he'd go sit down with these people who own these companies, and these guys, some of them, you know they own these companies. And so their dream, you know, they get to fish every once in a while, but their business, they're, they're busy running these big companies, whatever right. it is in, and they might be involved in fish. So he would go and sit with them and basically, you know, tell them all these stories and they would be like, this guy's living my dream. And they would, you know, and so they would like be like, Oh, this guy's awesome. And then yeah, they would yeah. be able to work deals. So, okay. So he would do, I think with real adventures, he would do a lot of the sponsor sponsorship getting back then. And, and okay. that was like a TV show. So they need sponsors to kind of make it pay for itself or whatever. Absolutely. So he set up a thing with them to film a whole thing on shipping a boat from Florida to a remote destination 
going down there, fishing it, the whole thing, right? So he got me hooked up with this company, Yacht Path, and also this another insurance company, like all these, and like it just wow, bonded into this big thing. Yeah. And they were gonna go down or ship it down. The whole thing is gonna be filmed. There's gonna be like a whole series. And they were gonna fish like for about a month or so down there with me and like put all this stuff together. And uh, I mean, it worked out good for me. It, I got like killer deals to get everything, which I wouldn't have been able to do or afford. And so worked out great. You know, release jumped in on it too. We got a release chair in there. Oh, nice. Um, Shellfish was involved in it. She came down and fished and stuff. And like, it was cool. Um, you know, unfortunately, when they got there, the fishing kind of sucked. And like, we like we just got the boat there. Bigger. So we were like kind of <laughs> struggling to find fish. And it was like, oh man, like, but the, they made an entire episode of basically about, they were there a month, but there were about three days that made their show. You know, I think we caught like, man, I feel like we caught like seven or eight fish in the last couple of days. And like, it was just like, doo, doo, doo. It, was, it all lined up, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was a whole nother thing we got. we finally did get that boat down there and then uh from that point on it was it was on i mean it was like my uh focus shifted to uh fully running that boat and and uh you know fully just promoting it as just charter fishing just getting guys to come there to fish like come and fish for a week or whatever and i would do sometimes level boards and stuff like that out of there and um that was when i really started to learn the fishery and uh it was exciting, man, because, you know, I was like fishing these spots that like, yeah, sure. There's guys that are going out there in their skiffs and fishing them. And they probably have been for generations and stuff. And they got like little aluminum boats that they'll go out and fish them. But like, they're not doing it to the extent of like trying to find big blue Marlin and right. like trying to figure out what the current's doing on these different structures in these different areas. Definitely a different game. They're just going, going. Yeah. They, they just put yeah. some jets out and stuff like that. Yeah. They pull a lot of those like metal jets and stuff and then just drive around and they would cut. I mean, the fishing's so good. You can do it yeah. in the bird piles. There are intense. Like they're just everywhere. <laughs> Huge piles of ahis and things. That's crazy. Um, so, you know, I, I, for me, it was fun because I was like, trying to figure it out and it was like every day was like oh let's go check this spot out and it was like where's their fish there where they're that and even to the extent of like naming certain spots when we'd fish them and start catching a bunch of fish on them and nobody's been out to this little spot so we're like okay we'll call it this and in the logs writing it the different things so it was an exciting time for me to kind of do that because it's like you felt like you were like like Zane Gray or something, you know, like they're <laughs> out there like doing something that, that was just hadn't been done before. Well, and fishing uh, exploration is pretty awesome. It, yeah, it's really fun going to a new place and trying to figure it out when you really don't have many people before you that have. You yeah. Know, I, I mean, I haven't done it to the extent that you have, but just going some of these places in the Caribbean that don't get fished that much. I, I love it. It's so fun to try to figure it out and learn everything yeah. about it, but you need time. It takes time. Like that's the hard time. part. <laughs> take time takes patience. patience yeah it takes a lot of patience <laughs> if you got an owner you gotta ha- you gotta have a guy that is like willing to get his butt kicked a little bit financially and not <laughs> catching anything because you gotta you just don't know you know you gotta learn but then you have the potential of finding something that's pretty magical or you know that it's that much more rewarding because you you did all the hard yards to find it you know you oh, yeah. found it, like or you figured it out or whatever so um so that was kind of like those, those years was a lot of exploring. Um, and, uh, we, I ended up 
getting an opportunity through a company that was starting up a fishing travel agency. And they were trying, they came down originally to book me out of Samoa. And we, we fished, uh, we fished like a week and we had blue water magazine down there. And we actually, we had some great fishing, but the whole time they were telling me about Vanuatu and, uh, the one owner of the travel agency had bought some property there and, you know, was just like, man, if you had this boat in Vanuatu, I could have you booked out every single day. It's an easy flight from Australia. It's like direct flight. It's really close. Everybody okay. knows it on australia it's like in australia new zealand vanuatu is like almost like the bahamas for the east coast you know okay. it's not as close but it's like it's pretty similar type of situation in a way right. you definitely can't just take a but zip out there you know take a boat but it's be a commitment yeah but it's uh you know in terms of like just traveling to fish it's kind of like the caribbean would be to like the east coast fishermen so it was it it was just very well known in that way um and there weren't a lot of boats there because it, it's hard to set stuff up there. It's hard to get down there. And the biggest thing in Vanuatu is like, you can't just bring a boat down there and charter out of there. You have to have like a a business in Vanuatu because okay. it's Haven. So there's like all this stuff. Anyways, they'd set up a business and he had relatives. His wife was a Nevan from Vanuatu, the guy that owned this travel agency. So he's like, look, if you want to bring your boat over, he's like, you know, we'll, we'll make it happen. You know, you got to commit to at least a year. So mm -hmm. it makes it worth it for me too. And everything, but like, I'll get, <clears throat> uh, my brother-in-law can come in and, uh, he's a fisherman too. He, and his dad was one of the original fishermen out of uh, one of the top guys back in the day. And he's like, you could kind of run under his business and he'll basically say he's leasing the boat off you or something like that. And it was like all set up kind of, so, so we could come in there and so I thought about it and was like, it's a long trip to drive that thing, put ladders on it, take it over there. Um, and uh, just kind of was like, well, you know, I'm kind of was burned out on Samoa at the time. I just like really hard to do things there sometimes. Right. And just like, yeah, I was just burned out and I was getting so into fishing. It was like, I just wanted to try something new and, the fishing out of there was a lot of like exploration and liveaboards. You'd do like a four day or a five day and you'd go up and fish the chain and then oh, stop on cool. Santo. Yeah. And then there's all this other stuff too, like GT fishing, popper, you know, like the reefs out there are insane. There's like little reefs out in the middle of the ocean and stuff and big dog tooth and, um, and big, big blue Marlin too. So, um, <laughs> I was like, all right. I just made the call or let's do this freaking thing. So we picked kind of up nice when, you know, it's going to be booked too. And you don't have, yeah, to exactly. When you and I was struggling to go up and fish is nice. Yeah. And he was going to do all the marketing. He was like, you don't even have to worry about it. I got the, uh, you know, they had boats there in the past, but they had just gotten rid of them. So they already had like the business set up and he was based in Sydney and had a lot of connections with like just a lot of like wealthy people that love the fish. So huh. basically it was, it was on when I would get there and it was like when it was going to be one of the nicer boats that it, probably the nicest boat you could charter out of there in terms of, you know, cause it was like a, at the time, a pretty new 43, All right. um, you know, it's a Cabo. So it's a comfortable platform, you know? Sure. Um, so yeah. So freaking went down there got a place in Port Vila. It all kind of lined up, you know, rented a spot right above the boat on the waterfront. And, oh, um, nice. And like pretty much, yeah, I could look out my window and see the boat pretty much. And um, <laughs> it, 
it was cool, dude. It was so we set it up and right there, there's like a bar, right? Like the way it works, there's like buoys and you tie the boat to the buoy and you just back in and tie up two stern lines and you have like a gangplank that comes down and your clients get on and off that way. And your boat just sits there and you each have your own slips. And then right behind there were the apartments we which we were renting one at. And then right to the side is the waterfront bar, which is like this famous bar down there. And yeah, it was, it's pretty crazy. And, you know, you're literally at the bar. You could throw a, a, a stone and hit the boat. You know, they're right there. So everyone would come at the end of the That's day. That's really cool. Thinking. I know Russ one year, Russ um, House Visa, very incredible fisherman. He's still out of there. He stays there. I think he's running a boat now, actually. He's turned turned around and ran a boat. But he was doing crew there for a long time. But they were, one point, specializing in fly fishing with uh, Tom Evans. And they were trying to break a lot of the fly fishing records down there. All right. And I forget what tippet it was, but they finally broke the record one year. <clears throat> and after they did all the weighing and all this stuff, they actually took the fish. And uh, I think it was like a 200-pound blue or like whatever. And they dragged it and they put it up on the bar in the waterfront bar. And everyone was taking shots off the fish. And the fish was, I mean, <laughs> probably probably not a good sight, but it was pretty cool. You know, it was, but it was that kind of a bar. It was like – right stuff that would go on there was pretty funny that's a, that's cool um, vibes yeah yeah so uh <laughs> but yeah man so uh that's how i got down there and well, what about you you're you're fishing there anything noteworthy yeah, that really sticks yeah. out of your mind a few things um well there's one one experience was just like mind-blowing so i had while I was fishing out of that, what I was doing was doing some day, I would do day trips out of Port Vila, which there's decent fishing right out of there. I actually really like the fishing right off there, but it was nice to come home every day. Yeah, of course. Out of Vila. Um, I had a, a, she's now ex-wife, but I was married at the time, uh, half Samoan, half Australian. And so, so she was there. So, you know, I, I did have like someone I want to come home to, you know, so doing the long live aboard trips can it wears out relationships for sure um, yeah it doesn't it's not knows, easy. yeah it's not easy man to have to to do it so those the trips i was meant to be doing were those long extended things and they were they wear you out but so i'd fish out of Vila. but then you know the main thing that the bread and butter that they were really booking me on was the live aboard so there's two airports there's one airport at the bottom chain which is the biggest island in port Vila. And then there's one, well, there's a couple other small little puddle jumpers, but then there's another one way at the top in uh, Santo, Espiritu Santo. How many miles and, between the two? Man, I, I could totally be off a little bit, but I think it's about 120 or 130. So a solid Maybe stretch of island. Then. Yeah, de decent stretch, yeah. <laughs> and up there in the top in uh, Santo, there's really like spectacular diving. Like back in, war in World War II, they when everything was done. So it's French, Vanuatu's French. Um, and it's, well, it's, it's, its own, but it's, it's also part of, it's a, also has French. a big French influence Sovereign in it. or something like that. Yeah. So back then though, the French were in there and I guess we had all our military stuff and the war was over. So, but we'd had all our stuff like tanks and Jeeps and all kinds of stuff. And so we said, Hey, to the French, like, we'll sell this to you guys. And like, I love this story, but, and so like the French were like, Oh, well, we know you can't take it home with you. Like, so yeah, we're not going to pay that. We'll give you like half of what you want or like, no, because it's going to cost you. And so the U S was just like fed up with dealing with them and said like, this is what we're going to sell them to you. And they're like, nah, nah we know you got to leave them here. So 
you know, whatever. So they took everything and they drove it off cliffs into the freaking ocean, like tanks and Jeeps and all this, the U.S. No just, way. They're like, well, you don't want to pay for them? Fuck them. We'll, we'll throw them in the ocean. <laughs> so drove them off into the freaking ocean. So now these created like these incredible dive spots. You can go down there and dive like these pretty preserved like tanks and um, all this stuff down there. And there was a big um, supply boat that got hit by a torpedo and they ran it aground there in World War II. And uh, it slowly sank down. And I think the one end is up in like maybe 40 feet and the, and the bottom end is like a hundred and some feet, but it's a big, like a cruise ship. Kind That's of. pretty cool. Um, so yeah. So it's a pretty famous dive. I mean, for diving, not cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But for, for, for like divers, they go there. So there's like accommodation up in Santo. Cause if there wasn't, there'd be nothing up there. It's just like All this right. stretch of Island up there. That's just like out there. All so right. that's so that's where we would we would fish all the way up there and then go in there, set up, drop those people off. They would fly home and a new group would fly into Santo. I'd pick them up in Santo. We'd fish out of Santo, fish the islands down. There's all these different islands, fish them down, anchor up in a different bay every night uh -huh. um, and then get to back to Vila and then do it again. Pick up the guys in Vila, go back up. So it was and, and it had you lined up real good. Yeah, man, it was wearing <laughs> me out, but uh, it was it was cool. You know, I, the liveaboard thing, um, it can be great or it can be catastrophic. It can be a nightmare. You know, stuff starts breaking, refrigerators, toilets. And if the oh, fishing, yeah, I, I mean, if the fishing's good, it doesn't matter. These guys will freaking use a bucket and go to the yeah. bathroom. The fishing's going up. But when the fishing's tough and you have issues like, man, you you better be on it. And, uh, you know, because it was a 43, I couldn't like have a chef on there or hire anyone. Yeah, so it was just you're doing it all. Cool. Yeah. So it's doing everything. So it was cool. It was a great learning experience, but it was it was difficult. During all that happening, there was a French billionaire that bought an island up there in Santo and started a like super high end resort. Ratua was what R-A-T-U, Ratua. And I don't know if it's gone now. I'd be interested to actually see whatever happened to the place. Um, but they wanted to have a boat up there for some of the year for their wealthy clients to go out and fish if they wanted to. And now the, the they set it up originally as like you couldn't just book it if you were in the public. Like they made it like one of these things where it was like, it's I don't know. Yeah, it was like if you wanted, like you could book it, but it was like, 15,000 a night or something or create, you know what I mean? Like they were right. not, they wanted it just for like very, very wealthy billionaire, like people right. that want to get away and go up there and get away or whatever. So they wanted just to have the boat there. And they were like, man, we'll, we'll pay you all this money. And they're probably not even going to use the boat. You're just going to sit on a mooring in front of this place. And like, if you know, someone wants sucks to too. use it, yeah. <laughs> But at the time, I was like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, I thought they would probably be fishing a bunch, you know, or whatever. Um, right. But they were like, you could still go fish if you want. Just go out and fish and bring the fish back and we'll use it at the restaurant. You know, we'll yeah, feed. Cool. But it was crazy, man. The place was like, they set it up. It was absolutely gorgeous. You know, he flew in things like rice houses from Indonesia that they converted into like really cool rooms. Like really, um, it was unreal. And he had like had some money on that place. Sellers set up and it was self-sustaining. They built, they grew all their food on there. I mean, it was wow. really, very, very interesting. Um, it was like, so it was small, but it was almost like a Walker's K, but like way more, I feel like 
I don't know. It was just definitely more set up in a way, but it was, it was interesting. So I was like, wow, this could be like this really cool thing. We could turn into this fishing. So they were willing to put some money in to have us do some media stuff. So they, they set up a trip and we had blue water magazine come and fish with us for a week. And there was a, there was some fads up there that the um, fisheries put in and the locals didn't fish them because they saw some sharks around it and they were like scared. <laughs> um, and the, the local fishermen up there, they're, they're like just fishing for Aku. That's what they want. Just skip Jack Aku. Okay. Um, if they catch a sailfish or something like that, great. But like, they're like hand lining and it's different for sure. So there was no sport fishing going on off these buoys. And, uh, I went, checked it out one day and like, there was bait, there was tunas all around. Like, man, that looked good. You know, the next day we went and fished like one of the the seamount around there and that was pretty cool anyways this these guys flew in and they're like okay you know let's do some fishing see what we can find here and they had like their people that were on Ratua would come fish with us some of the days and they'd only want to go for a little bit and i'm like man the fad's right around the corner you know and the one guy had fished vanuatu a few times and he's like oh we should really go fish this bank you know whatever and i'm like man there's this buoy out here that looks just phenomenal. Let's just go check it out. You know, let's go there for the first day. And so we showed up and um, it was just like on, man, there was just blue Marlin freaking everywhere, dude. Like I think we ended up going nine for 14 or something on lures. Oh, man. We put a bait out and bait got hammered too. And like, it was just on, it was just <laughs> like kind of crazy. Um, and the fishing just stayed really good off this buoy. And these guys would come out and we'd only fish till like 10 AM and then turn around and go back in. They'd be like, well, we're good. And That's I'm like, amazing. Up dark and see what we can do, you know? So yeah. they wrote an article about it, which was cool, but I, the fishing was like so phenomenal that we, that we ran into off that buoy, um, that, uh, I even had a charter, like right after they left, just like a, a couple that booked me for a week or something. And we went and fished that buoy and it was still good. Wow. Um, and so, you know, the word started to get around and guys in Vila were like, man, we want, I want to come up there and fish it. Word started getting around. Anyways, I left because I had to do a, a trip back down and I went back up. I think it was Greenpeace or something. Somebody came through and they cut the damn buoy off. Oh, no I was devastated. Yeah. And uh, they eventually put the buoy back up. And uh, I actually went up there with the Dreaming On guys, you know, that big Garlington. The Dreamin yeah, on. yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, so I jumped on with them when they fished, when they came into Vanuatu, I fished with them. And uh, I went up there and I showed Randy where it was and we went up and fished it and it just wasn't the same. The water was kind of green and weird in there. And I think we oh. caught some water, but it wasn't, it wasn't very good up there. Um, and, and I was bummed because I talked it up so much and we went up there <laughs> it just wasn't the same whatever it was Still needed conditions no matter what yeah you know but but it was insane man that that fishing was just like lights out like it was like there were whales like eating shoals of bay and there was like looked like your sounder was broken like you'd hit like you would mark like hard bottom and it was all this little stuff which just happened in kona recently in january and like there was an insane bite but it must have been like little little tiny things but it was so stacked tight and it was all kind of in that vicinity around where that buoy was. And then the buoy had tunas around it. And then the tunas were eating the little, I mean, it was just like, that's light. Cool. like it was going off. Like I can only imagine going back now, kind of knowing what I know and having that week with like, um, or if you had a sonar or something 
or just yeah. doing baits, just fishing off that buoy. Like we were just pulling lures. Um, and, uh, yeah, what you could have, you probably could have phenomenal numbers off it. So what, what kind of lures were you pulling back then? What were the, what were your um, top three? You know, I, I pulled a lot of Bart's. I had a pretty good friendship with Jack over there at Black Bart. So we pulled mm-hmm. a lot of Bart wars. Um, like Blue Breakfast was a good one. The 1656 was a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, shit, man, dude, just like the Purple Soft Head Moldcraft was pretty killer for me. Right. Uh, um, what else? A couple Crampton baits. I think I had a Crampton plunger that was getting bit pretty good back then. That was about the extent. I pulled a lot of Bart's. And I, I think partially because hawaiian lures back then this was they still weren't really keel weighting a lot of them so unless you really understood <clears throat> how to run them it it they don't run great unless you know what like how to rig and run it right like this right. Hawaiian, you know a lot of the handmade lures will they're a little more difficult to run so i i in what respect like what do you just, what makes yeah them- well yeah, if you don't have the if your hook rig's not 100% correct in it and like you're um there's so many little variances that could just make it pull in or make it just get a little bit lazy or too much movement and then you end up missing a bunch of fish cuz of the way they eat it. Yeah. Um you know, it's like got too much it's too erratic. Um been there when I was learning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're just like the lucky the the thing about Hawaii like and if if they're making them for people in Kona like the fishery we have it's like it's not realistic for the rest of the world I mean we're fishing in like a swimming pool and it is just like so calm and all day we do all we do is pull lures so you're right. just sitting there staring at your lures and the water's so clean and um and so you don't you have can, to adjust that much because it is a swimming pool once you say yeah exactly you're you're only adjusting like a little bit here and there through, yeah. you know, the bullet will adjust a lot through the day, but you're not having to change too much. And when you're fishing in rough water, like it's really difficult to get these, those lures to run really good as well. And like, if you didn't know what the, unless you spent some time in Kona watching them in a, in a swimming pool, like this is how this lure should run. Right. Then when you're not fishing in water, that's not perfect. You're not really sure that that's, you know, you're like, oh, this is how it should run, you know? So until right. I really spent a lot of time in Kona, I I kind of just thought, you know, oh, it looks good. It's wiggling. It's doing this. It's popping. It's on the right part of the wave for the most part. You know, I wow. thought it was good, but there's so many little tweaks that they just make a difference between what like a Kona fisherman would think looked good and what a regular lure fisherman would. What exactly good. are you looking for when you're pulling your lures? Practice? Um, well, it I mean, depends everywhere on gets what, a little different, but yeah, exactly. It depends on what the lure is like a, a tube style lure or something like that. I just, I really want it to be a consistently pushing water, um, okay. like kind of all healing good. And I don't really want it skipping out or doing anything weird. And then I don't want them pulling, pulling in. So sometimes they just, the way they're made, they just pull the one side or the other. And so if I make sure you put them on the opposite side. (laughs) Yeah. So you could do one or two things. You could just say, well, look, this isn't going to work on my short corner. It's got to be a long corner bait, like, like a smash bait and all hello smash bait consistently likes to pull. If you're looking at your spread consistently likes to pull to the right, you know, like if you're looking back at your spread, so it really is a long corner lure, um, or right short, uh, right short or yeah, long corner lure because it likes to pull that way. But if you know how to use your hook as like a rudder and you know how to use like your, your memory on your leader, you can get that run really good in a short corner. 
And, and that's why I like chip chip Mammal is like, he's caught a lot of fish on the smash bait. He's one of the guys that really helped make that lure famous. And he caught granders and all kinds of big fish on it. And he always ran a double hook rig in it. And not really because he believed in double hook rigs, but because with a double hook rig, you can really steer a lure. So with his double hook rig, he could steer that smash bait. So it would get way out he could run it on a short corner and it would get way out into the clean water. And you can do the same thing with a, with a stiff rigged, uh, single hook, um, or not even stiff rig. You could do it with just a cable rig, but you can still do it with a single hook, but you have to use a toothpick to basically change where that memory of the coil is coming out and uh, then okay. you want that rudder and you can kind of pin them against each other to make them work where you can get them to go out. So that's something I've worked on a lot. And that's something that, you know, all my crew, when they're done fishing with me, they, they know how to do. And, uh-huh. and like, I, I pride myself on having my lures getting out into that cleaner water. Now, like, I don't know, it, I don't think it's going to make, I, I, they still can see it when it's in the wash, but I think you're going to get more bites and you get better bites when it's out in the clean water. It makes it's sense. So much cleaner. And I also like, I, this is just an opinion, but I think that when they come in to feed, you know, like any animal, when it's eating, it has that moment of vulnerability. And so I think when a Marlin comes in to feed, like if it's just one of those things where they just coming up and they just hammer in this thing, they're probably not thinking too much. It's yeah. just boom. But sometimes you'll see them kind of follow and look and get weary. And then once they're fired up, they're on it. But I think that they do, some of them, especially the big ones, do want to see what their exit strategy is once they eat this fish. So if you know, that's like that inside out bite, uh, where they come up from in the washing, eat into the clean water. Right. Um, my thought or my opinion is that if they can see into that clean water, okay, I can eat this and there's no predator in there. There's nothing that's going to bother me. I can eat it and get, and, and, and keep moving. You know, I think they eat it with a little bit more deliberate like movements instead of just a whack or whatever um because it's like oh this is easy it's in the clean water i see it it's, it's not it's a consistent runner and that, and that that goes with what i like my lures to do too is like i want them to be in a consistent um almost straight running you can have a tight wiggle and move a little but i want that lure to be very consistent i don't want it to run one way for a while and then all of a sudden kind of do something weird or do like a slight roll or get lazy i want it to be very consistent right. so when you do want to eat it you get a better you get a better bite you know of course there's like lures like scoop face lures like the bart breakfast and stuff like that um wow. or like the violator bonds makes a violator andy moise makes one at 13 something or other those run awesome as a teaser and I mean, obviously I've caught oh, yeah. a lot of fish, a grander on one, but like when you put the hooks in them and, you know, they move around so much, the bites you get off them a lot of time are not great bites. Like you lose a lot of fish, um, right? but there's days that that's the only thing they want and it's just raising them. So at black bar breakfast, man, I get a lot of teaser bites on that thing from they everything, not just blues, yeah. everything, everything. <laughs> Yeah, they smash it. It's got so much lifelike movement to it. It really fires them up, I feel like. Because it yeah. just like it does its own teasing. Like you don't need to it does, reel it. It's all over it the place. Yeah. But when you put a hook in it, it makes it where, yeah, you're gonna miss some fish on it. Like yeah. just notice like a straight runner lure is gonna get more bites, I feel. Better bites, maybe not more better bites 
than what you would off it, but better hook and hold ratio. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. The, at the end of the day, lure fishing is lure fishing. It's tough. You're not going to catch, you know, you're just always going to miss fish. It's just, yeah. it's just, how it is. I didn't and know pull they off a fair amount too. They're gonna lo- yeah. And you know, there's all these different things like, Oh, this hook, this will do it. Or this new little break off hook. And this is, it's still lure fishing. Right. You hook them, you hook them. If you don't hook them, you don't, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. You just, yeah. figure, you know, I mean, I think that's why, that bait switch technique is just superior in so many ways. I mean, you're just, you have your chance at really getting, you know, if you make them eat and you tease them, you're going to catch them pretty much with a certain. Well, while we're on this topic, um, before we go back to South Pacific and finish off there, I, I wanted to ask you, um, I actually reached out to you before I was doing an article for Marlin Magazine, but it was more yeah. so geared towards bait and switch. And you're like, well, we really don't do that here. What is yeah. the reason for that you guys there's some theories that you know you that yeah. a lot of fish there do one and done they, they're gonna eat and go but yeah anybody try to tease their fish uh, they fish there much or not really yeah yeah like well Kona, obviously yeah 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 i mean this might upset a few people but uh it is totally doable in kona um this last <laughs> year that's all we started doing and okay I, always told by everybody there that it would not work that the fish won't tease you're going to miss a lot of fish you're just they're just going to come up hit the teaser and be gone and that's what everyone said in Kona. it's just what everybody said um it does happen <laughs> and it happens, of it course, happens everywhere <laughs> that's just going to happen anywhere yeah. you know you yeah. don't and and i think yeah i just think that people were not it takes a lot of work and it's it's a different it's a different setup and i just don't think people were willing to make the change and Kona is one of those spots where there's a lot of people that are comfortable in doing a certain thing and they don't really want to change and they don't really like to change. Like when I first came down there and was pulling dredges, everybody gave me a hard time. You don't need dredges in Kona. You don't need dredges for big fish. Everybody told me. And they're like, that's stupid. Something's just going to eat it. The one you're looking for is going to eat that dredge and you're never going to see the dredge again. And the fish is going to be gone. And I mean, I, I, everyone gave me a hard time. Everyone like phenomenal fishermen too. Like people would, they'd be like, you know, seeing me doing all this work to set up these dredges and be like, oh, they don't work here. <laughs> now everybody in the fleet pulls a dredge. I mean, they all, er, why not? So, why yeah. Not? That's the thing. I mean, maybe it doesn't work on big fish. I don't know. I think it brings them closer to your boat. Maybe it doesn't raise them, but I think it's going to bring you closer to the corner. I notice when I don't pull, I went through a stage where I stopped pulling a dredge because I, and, and I noticed that when I have the dredge out, I get way more bites on the lure right behind that dredge than when I don't have one. So I 100% think they're right there. Yeah, I think it works. But anyways, I think it's just the same thing with the bait and switch fish in there. I would say that it is, you would want to pull like a, um, kind of like a, a mix because I think if you pulled all teasers and nothing with any hooks in it, you might get yourself into trouble there because some of the fish do kind of act a little weird. Um, like they will only get a couple shots, but from what I've seen, and, and again, this is the same thing like with the dredge. Everybody's always said they don't tease, they don't tease, they don't tease. And I noticed on when they would eat, like I would pull like a big lunch teaser or something to teaser up close right? and get a lot of fish would pile on it. And a lot of times I wouldn't get them. I wouldn't see them again. They would just eat it and they disappear. But there's a difference between knowing how to tease a fish and not knowing how to tease a fish and like the different stuff that's happening there. And like, you know, when he's on it and you just rip and you rip it right away from that thing. And then you don't have anything in front of it. 
or you don't have anything for it to eat right after you pulled that thing away. Yeah. And also the size difference, I think makes a difference. So, you know, I think the long story short is like, if you put a really good bait and switch fisherman out there, you know, guys that probably are more familiar with bait and switch fishing off uh bigger fish, you know, like, yeah, like uh, I'd say somebody like, spent guys. some time in Cape Verde's or. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And if they were to take their program and put it in cone, it would work very well. And, and I've been noticing I'm going to bait and switch next season too. there. I'm just going to continually, I've switched my whole. It's just so fun. <laughs> dude. It's so fun, man. It yeah. is like the, I, once I started doing it, the first day we did it, we had one like eat one to the back of the transom and just like, and we were at that point, I didn't have like the bait set up and I didn't have a, like a proper pitch, like an 80 that you could hold. So right. we were just pitching lures off the, okay. off, like a tingham off the, off the um, 130. Uh-huh. And dude, the bites just, the thing is awesome. And it, and it's like, it's the, <laughs> the most fun everybody can have too. And everybody's involved. Your charter can see it. And uh, you know, like I, when the sonar stuff started happening there, I was like, man, I'm going to have to step up my game here in some way because I, yeah. I don't have a sonar yet. I don't know when I'll ever get one. So I need to like work harder and figure this out. So I need to make every bite count. So like we're bait and switch fishing. We're going to figure it out. And like we got our butt kicked on a few fish for sure. Just like the, the switch, but almost every fish I raised on the teaser, we would get another bite out of. There yeah, was one fish awesome. we didn't. So they were, they, they totally play the game over there. I mean, I've only done it one season, so I can't total. I can't, you know, speak like, oh yes, this is the new thing of Kona, but it'll work there, man. Um, what I've been doing is we've been running two teasers uh, up close, um, just behind like the dredge in my like, and I have a big flap thing that I'm pulling and uh, pulling those, and then um, we're pulling two a little bit farther back with hooks in them, and then a stinger with a hook. So there's a pretty good playing field for my teasers to pitch Uh off. But if we miss them on the pitch or they, or they eat my teaser and pull me way out, I still got the longs that they could eat with a hook in it. And so we kind of started doing that just like training wheels, you know, just so kind of what uh, a fair amount of charter boats from what I'm told in Cape Verde's do. They still, yeah, they're hook hook long riggers. Yeah. Everything else inside is, you know, bait and switch. Everything up close is like, yeah. And and that's what I'll probably keep doing. It seemed to work really well for us because if we did miss one on a pitch, um, or if he did get a hold of my teaser and I couldn't get it away and it pulled out a bunch of line, um, we'd get it to convert to one of the longs. And then my longs, I've I've dumbed them, not dumbed them, but like they're straight runners. Like they're right. like I use the Aloha lures, um, the sundowner, which is basically uh a mold craft wide range but it's made out of resin you know so it's, okay, it's yeah i i use one of those and then depending what's going on i'll run like a smash bait or something on the other side and then a stinger just a bullet all right um it works really well for i mean i i found like i i just wish we had more fish around when i was doing it but it worked pretty good um and then i have an 80 which we're gonna fish we're gonna pitch a dead bait off and then the 130 we were pitching a lure, but I just saw this. I don't know if you've had any experience with this at all, but I just saw that these guys have been using this thing for the one thirties. It's like, it's like on a rod, butt, and it's like, it looks like a barrel. It looks like a, I don't know. It's just like, yeah. A uh, what's it called? In one of my podcasts earlier, I guess like my sixth episode with Nick Bovell, uh-huh. they, they use that. Some, where were they? 
the pitch meister, I think it's called. Okay, okay. And yeah, yeah and you can pitch off your 130. How yep. did he, what was his thoughts on that thing? How did he uh, say He said it worked great. He's really good for charters. Um, I'll have to yeah. turn it back and listen to it again. You have to listen to it yourself. I'll go check it out. Yeah. About it. Yeah, the pitch meister. That's what it was called. That's it. I found but, it. Someone uh, it's, sent me a message about it. And it I made it easy, it easier for charters, especially, he said, for people that don't do it all the time. That yeah felt like it was a little bit like cheating but <laughs> yeah <laughs> i yeah, think it yeah. is legal i mean it's igfa legal there's nothing wrong with doing that yeah just no, keep it think... up without making a mess and you know yeah unless you have experienced crew pitching and even experienced crew can make a mistake coiling when they go get in a hurry and try to yeah you know pull the pin or bust off the rubber band the wrong way just you know it can go really bad yeah so, my biggest thing was like the 130s like pitching off a 130 and like holding a 130 up, I mean, that's heavy. And and the the retrieve the, coming off the line, I just don't think you can feed them good enough. I don't know. I've done so, it. You can do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. It's no. it's heavy. You got to be ready. Because I'd love to have both. I'd love to have a big pitch bait on my 130, and then an 80, just a smaller one. And I just got one of those butts at Terminator route, or what is you know the butts where you can press a button and it can be a straight butt or a Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. I have that on the 80 pitch. Okay. So but anyways, yeah. Um the the bait and switch thing I think does definitely work in Kona. Um, I think the theories that a lot of people had there was that you know, you definitely do have big fish that come in and they just it's just a big woof. Yeah. And she's gone. But it happens this, everywhere. I mean it, it's, it happens everywhere. It happened to me in Curacao last year. Three days in a row, we only had one blue marlin bite, and each one teaser blasted it, gone. And yep. So the fourth day, I put a, a hook lure on a short rigger, and mm-hmm. that got bit and stripped off a bunch of line, lost them. Like, yeah, this is why I don't do this because <laughs> yeah, I was bait fishing, trolling the six and a half, seven knots. Like, really, I should be going faster. I'm gonna be doing, you know, hook yeah. lure fishing, and just was a dumb idea. But everybody's been there, so yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. getting frustrated. I was like, these things are just blasting us. I might as well just put a hook lure there. Hook and see if you just snag them. 50 yeah. 50 shot you know or not even but <laughs> yeah 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 exactly so that that is that that is like a genuine concern for people in kona like because you never know when that fish is going to show up and like that might be the biggest one you've ever seen and like you may just have that woof but yeah. like i'm willing i mean i've lost big fish every way you can imagine <laughs> those, those things have broken my heart so much that i'm just like willing I'm I'm willing to make the the change and and do the risk and the other thing that I don't think people factor in in Kona is the fish when there's hooks in your lures and when there's not hooks in the lures the fish act a lot different so you know when they're talking about like guys are like well you only get you know comes up pulls a little line comes right off and you never see that fish again well that fish acts a, way different when that's all skirt back there and there's not a hook there for sure might have like might have caught them in the eye or might have scraped their face. And yeah, they're out of there. But like, from what I've noticed on the teasers, like they act so much different than they do on a hook door. The way they come back on that second bite, the way they just stay there right after they eat it and come and they're right up on, like, it's, it's just a whole different thing. And I think it's just wrapping the head around it, but like, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, that, that is like the future of fishing. Like you, you pitching baits fish. It's just, it's just the way to go. I think. And also like charters, like, for me at so many times you have a blue marlin you know beautiful bait switch sick bites every yeah. time we get, like, even whether we hook them or not like if they're on and jumping everybody's like 
that's all I wanted to see right there. Like they, yeah. they, they don't even care if they release that fish at that point, just because it's the coolest thing they ever saw. Instead yeah. of just one bite hook run, they got this they fish do crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. We yeah, had that just, just recently. We had a guy that he's fished with me a lot. He's a great dude. And he was there with his son and we we're coming down the line and we had like a 500 pounder, just pile on my short teaser and piled on a couple of times. I got it out of the way. We got the pitch out. We were still doing the tingum, you know, basically yeah. like a or with a and we were holding it in the 130 and uh blasted the tingum, you know, right off the freaking back, like first wave, let go, came tight, getting in the chair, and fish came off. And Byron was like, you know, both him and his son were standing at the transom just watching all this go down. And he was like, dude, that was he's like, I don't even care when you catch that. He's like, that's all. Yeah. He's like the rest, you know, that's just hard work at that point. He's like, that was all I want. He was like, that was amazing. Was like, Why are we not doing this every day? And we're like, well, we are now. This yeah. is what we're doing. so, so it's fun, but yeah, I mean, I just, it does take a lot of, uh, it takes, it takes a, a little bit more. I don't know if I'd say skill. It just takes a lot more organization and, you know, that's why I got the, like the, the headsets now so I can talk and like, oh, just, yeah a lot more going on it's yeah. not like set your lures out and just drive around and get bit like i i try to be paying attention i try to stay away from those things for so long but unless you're fishing with somebody that you've been fishing with your whole life or you don't need to talk the yeah. heads and for me teaching like i can teach oh, somebody so much easier so yeah. much faster yeah because you can teach them in that moment and instead of them making a mistake twice you can tell them exactly what went down and yeah. go next time and yeah and uh, back to the whole fish and like the some fish what i've come to terms with some fish are meant to be caught at that time and some fishes aren't like a hundred percent you do everything you can do everything right and it still goes wrong and yeah you just need to come to terms with that (laughs) yeah yeah Um, Yeah, it goes both ways so you could do everything wrong and still catch the thing (laughs) (laughs) those situations where you get an angler that does just about everything wrong And somehow this fish, this poor fish, is just like <laughs> it was my time, man. Yeah, yep, so true, so true. Yeah, yep. Uh, that's awesome. Well, that's cool. You guys are starting to do that. And, uh... Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Um, you know, I know guys like I think Kevin Nakamura's done a, bu- a bunch of taser fishing for like um, he does it for like fly fishing and like light tackle stuff. Right. That makes um, sense. And he's he's but you know he when he does it he's got two crew and uh, and but you know I know he's keeps his stuff pretty quiet. He's very humble. Uh-huh. And he just, you won't hear a lot about it, but I know, do you know, he, uh, he does, you know, would practice that when he was doing like, uh, fly fishing records and stuff. So, and they would get him teasing all the time. So pitching okay. a fly to a fish is a lot harder because I mean, they got to take the boat out of gear. It's like a whole different thing. There's a so lot of rules. I've done it. Yeah. Like getting chartered, it it's, off, it's tough. That's hard, man. And, yeah. and so that's, it's, it's kind of the right way. You know, yeah. it's very difficult. <laughs> Yeah. But other than that, from what I know, not a lot of guys are doing it. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we're going to, we're going to do it from now on. So, um, yeah, I like it. It, I, I think it works there. Yeah. yeah. I do. Can't wait to see your numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to yeah. before we, we've been talking a little bit about Kona, but I wanted to go sure. back to where you were in Vanuatu and, and finish off there. I mean, before we move on with how you went from there to Hawaii any more good fishing stories or crazy catches while you're down there? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we had, we had some pretty nice fish for sure. I have, I, there's one funny story in that. It wasn't like a real big fish, but 
we had one um you have to have local mates down there so uh the that's just the way they have it so i had um my buddy that had been fishing with me in samoa um and he actually now runs a boat on the east coast but he was working for me at the time and so i had two crews so i had johnny who's a local local guy and then austin and then eventually austin ended up having to go home or whatever and johnny stayed with me full time and they're good they're good mates they're good crew um and johnny who was my crew was the only guy that caught a grander there he actually wired that the grander um, oh, wow. that they uh tom evans caught there uh and they were fly fishing at the time and uh thing came up on a teaser and they luckily had a pitch bait uh on i think a one yeah on a 130 and they pitched it um but anyway so i had good local crew but um you know they're i'm letting everything go you know all my marlin i don't kill them so you know for the the local guys do like to whack them and take them back family or whatever but he they they understood the catch and release ethic and i just kind of let them know when they popped on with me that we were to do that um, but when we were up there in Vanuatu, we had one that came up and it, uh, it choked it. Like, I think it went to throw up and, uh, a fish got stuck or something in its throat and it choked and died. When we got it up, there was like a mahi tail sticking out of its face. Like out of its <laughs> it was like a, it was probably like a 400 pounder or something, you know, wasn't anything real big, but, um, thing was dead, you know, just bloated and upside down and like, okay, uh-huh. we're not going to buy this thing. So when you're in that Santa area, you're not going back to port every night. Like you're just you just on a mooring. Um, so he goes, Hey, you know, I was like, what are we gonna do with this thing? You know, he's like, Hey, just let's bring it on. He's like, I got a cousin that lives in Santo and I'll have him come and pick it up. And I'm like, all right, cool. Whatever, you know, um, throw it in the boat, you know, give it to your cousin as a gift, whatever. So we finish our fishing, we get back, drop our charter off. They get picked up by the taxi boat and they have little skiffs, uh, like panga style skiffs that come and do the taxiing. And so we're going to put this, fish on this panga and bring it back to the mainland there and his cousin's going to come pick it up in his car and uh so we're like all right cool whatever so we get it first getting it on the panga was a nightmare trying to get it set up we couldn't get it in we're like just trying to lash it up alongside and finally get it over and we just drop it off in the sand and we kind of got to swim this thing in and now we've been fishing all day and fishing hard i'm like exhausted and i'm just like cursing johnny i'm like dude why did you want us to do this like this is a nightmare like so anyways we're bringing it through we get it up on the sand and now we can't get it past the sand because the thing's too heavy (laughs) (laughs) and so then like uh well cousin's probably gonna have some boys with them to help us whatever so we see this little car pull up and i'm like that's not him is it he's like yeah that's him i'm like it's like a clown car, dude. It was like a little <laughs> car and he opens the trunk. I'm like, what the frick is he going to do with this thing? Like he's going to put it in there. And uh, so they start, he's like, well, we'll cut it up and we'll fill his trunk with the pieces. And like, <laughs> there's nothing down in the trunk. He's just going to cut this thing up 400 pounder. It might even been bigger and like put all the pieces in the trunk. I'm like that is not going to work. Ended up, long story short, they tie this thing onto the top of his car like a surfboard. And like it's like draped over. I think they put some meat on the trunk too and just let it like, you know, cut some of the meat off and put it in there and whatever. And then whatever was left, they tied over the top. And it was just like the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. And here he goes, like in his little clown car with like a 400 something pounder and a bunch of meat in the back of the car, like dripping blood everywhere. Oh, man. 
what is going on here? <laughs> uh, that was an interesting story. I always like, always think about that. I think it's pretty funny. I wish you had some pictures of that. I had to be. Yeah. Afraid. Yeah. I wish I did. I, I wish <laughs> I was, uh, was way more into like GoPros and all that back then. Cause there was some really kind of cool stuff we were doing. I uh, bet. Another big catch, I mean, it wasn't a marlin, but uh, it was a really big GT. We had a guy came out and fished with us, and on the way up, uh, it started getting super rough, and he was with his wife, and she got really sick. She was over, and we caught a marlin, like, right out of the bat, and then uh, caught another one just, like, right after that, too, and uh, so he was like, well, I'm pretty happy on marlin, but he had, like, a bunch of days with us, and he really wanted to catch a giant trevally, a casting. And his wife started getting sick. And I was like, well, I was like, honestly, I don't think we need to go all the way up to Santo and fish. I'm like, we could cut inside here and we can fish inside in some of these protected areas, whatever. And, uh, you know, fish these reefs and your wife won't get sick and we'll just GT fish. Um, and just pull popper, you know, just throw poppers and I'll just back up. I would back up onto the reef, throw poppers. And as soon as he'd hook up, I'd, I'd try and get us off the reef, you know, right. get us in deeper water. So we were working reefs. We were like a few days in now and he was catching trevallis, but just little ones, like, you know, whatever, 30 pounders, 20 pounders, whatever. And, uh, you know, red bass, there's these big red bass that come up and eat and all Pretty this fun, stuff. So it's, fun. it's fun. You know, he was having a good, but he was like, I just really want to catch a GT. Like, that's what I want to do. And like, that's Vanuatu is pretty famous for GTs, but it's just like anything. Like sometimes you just can't find them. Uh -huh. And, uh, so we, and, and it's not really my specialty either, you know, like there's right. guys up there, they have like skiffs, like littler boats and they can get into these little zones where I'm on a 43 cobble. Like it's not, I can only get into certain yeah, spots. You're limited. You know? Yeah. So, uh, so we, uh, you know, he was kind of bummed anyways. So we come into, um, this one anchorage inside hat Island there and, uh, throw the, throw the pick, get set up. And, um, Johnny's like, Hey, he's like, there's big trevallis in here. He's like, you should throw your popper around the boat. Now we're like far back inside this Island. It's all mud bottom. It's like, you're almost like in an estuary back there. So I'm thinking like, there's no way there's trevallis GTs and back in here in this mud, like way back up inside here. And I just didn't know enough about those animals, but, uh, you know, so I'm thinking like, yeah, have him throw his popper, like just so he's busy doing stuff while we're making dinner. Yeah. But like, I'm not thinking he has a chance at all on catching one. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm going to make like a bolognese or something. I'm cooking the boil in the water. I'm standing in the galley and out of the corner of my eye, I see what it just looks like a freaking bomb goes off in the water. Like, woof. and I look up in the side and he's bent over. I mean, he's tight and and it's like, and he's like, oh man, oh man. I'm like, what the hell was that? And I'm like, there's no <laughs> way. And so I run out on the back deck. I'm like, Johnny's like, it was a big GT. It's a big GT. I'm like, no way, dude, in the mud here. Anyways, long story short, we get it up and uh, it's like a proper GT. And uh, we pull it through the door <laughs> there and everything and like take a bunch of pictures. And like it had mud all over. It was like digging in the mud when he's fighting it and doing stuff. And yeah, it was like, yeah, it was the biggest GT we ever caught. It was like, well, I mean, we never really got a weight on it, um, but it was well over a hundred pounds. That's and, pretty I mean, awesome. Photo of the three of us, and I'm on one side, I'd hold the head, and my client's in the middle, and Johnny's in the back, and it's the three of us holding this big GT. <laughs> That's and, awesome. Uh, all catch and release, so you know you let him go, but yeah, uh, it was it was made his trip, and I'm like, man, we're inside this little mud hole right here. <laughs> <So> <laughs> But uh, but yeah, man, that was that was cool. There's 
you know, some other little stories here and there, but it was, uh, it was all in all was pretty cool. You know, I never got a real big one, big blue Marlin when I was there, you know, uh-huh. the biggest might've been like in the upper sevens or something, but, okay. uh, but I saw a lot of fish, you know, um, definitely, definitely saw some fish for sure. And a lot of potential and it was, uh, it was a really cool experience. Yeah. yeah I bet pretty cool place. The world, not many people yeah. ever see it. Yeah. yeah. Always yeah, interesting yeah. Just somewhere I'd, I'd love to go, but yeah, it's cool, man. Some of those islands out there, you'd pull into the anchorages and tie up and there'd be guys walking around naked with like those, like just a little thing over their area. And like, it's just like <laughs> so primitive, dude. And like, yeah, it's just, it's national geographic stuff. Yeah. Well, what took you from there to Kona? How did that happen? Um, well, I ended up going back to Samoa through Vanuatu. So while I was in Vanuatu, um, there was a tsunami that happened in Samoa. There was a big, oh, wow. a big fault line out there offshore and it wiped, it was really devastating. It wiped out the whole resort was gone. Our surf wow. resort was just a pile of mud. And so at that point, um, what year is this? I don't know. I'd have to Google it. If I had my phone, I pull it up. I can't remember, but I want to say like maybe t- 2008. I think or something. I don't know. You can look it up. Samoa, Samoa tsunami. 2009. 2009. Yeah. So it was devastating. And uh, so wiped the whole place out. We had insurance that barely covered us, but it wasn't enough to rebuild. So I had to make a decision of what I was going to do. And so we ended up, there was uh, grants through different government organizations to help with tourism. So, we were able to get approval for like a pretty big loan. And so I made the call, let's just rebuild this surf resort, make it like really nice, use the loan money. Let's do it. Let's start up and let's do it how we wanted the place to always be. Cause when we got involved and when I got in, we were basically just updating what had been there since the start. And so right. there's like all these issues Making and stuff. It work, basically. Yeah. So, um, so we made that decision to do it and it was quite a big, big uh, investment and pretty big, uh, you know, debt to take on. So uh, back then I used to just have managers run it when I was in Vanuatu and doing all my stuff. Um, uh-huh. But then he said, look, it, it doesn't make sense. Like I need to be back there running it for the first few years and just make sure we get this thing on its feet and not go mm-hmm. bankrupt. So I made the decision to move back. So we picked the Cabo up and um, drove it back. And then uh, I fished out of there with the Cabo for a few more years. And uh, I say when I caught my grander was then. And, uh, you know, we had some great fishing when I got back with the Cabo. Ended up uh, just... Let's share the grander story real quick. Yeah, uh, I'll try and make it really fast because it could, it can, it'll (laughs) span super long. But I just, I had to take the boat to get, uh, when I got back to Samoa, um, there was one year, there was a uh, cyclone that came through like a big hurricane uh-huh. and the boat got like severely damaged. Um, we almost sunk the boat trying to bring it oh, into, wow. uh, take it around and put it in this, um, area that was going to be a little more sheltered. And we, one of the motors got like water intrusion in, up inside and actually like blew up, um, oh, while wow. we were running. Yeah. Like we got hit in the, it was crazy. Like a wave basically smashed us coming in through the reef pass. There was a, a way there was a, an unmarked coral head that you never know that it was there. You never would think a wave would break, but there was so much swell with this coming cyclone that wow. it just kind of picked up and it, and yeah, we basically caught a wave and it broke that behind us. 
pushed through the one side, went up and somehow was able to get so much force. It went all the way up and into the engine. And then, uh, and it might've only been a tiny bit of water, but enough that, you know, it can't compress. So right. put that, put that one in gear to run out, to get away from that. And, uh, that one engine blew up. So it was like a total failure, total destroyed engine. So my insurance actually covered it. So they sent a new one in, um, on a container. I had to take the boat to American Samoa on one engine and there's a slipway there. They pulled it out. They sent mechanics down. It was man engines. Wow. And I will say it was, it was pretty phenomenal what they did. I was pretty impressed. And That's they, incredible. They <laughs> tore the one engine down and they had the new engine in a container and they just pulled it piece by piece and put it together piece by piece in the boat. And I didn't wow. have to rip it apart, nothing. They, it was pretty impressive. Um, that is impressive. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think the, I can't remember it, but the block was probably fine. Um, but they, I mean, they, they did it. They pulled it all apart, put it anyways. When I got it back to Samoa, um, my insurance company needed me to pull it out and do a full new survey on it so they could revalue the boat. Now it's going to do it, make sure everything's good. So the only way in independent Samoa, um, that there's a slipway around the corner. Um, and the, the slipways are like made for commercial boats, like aluminum, you know, metal boats and stuff like that, or whatever, metal steel, whatever it like, you don't, they're not really made for fiberglass boats to get in. So it's always scary. It's not like a travel <laughs> lift where you pull in and they put the lid, you Lings, know, and yeah. it, no, it's not like you go in there and there's like a kind of a diver in the water a little bit. And it's like a train track and you get up and they put the blocks under you. And then they, they start this thing and the train pulls the boat out. Yeah. Railway. What are, yeah. So anyways, we went, we were going to, we had to go get over there to do the survey. And so I had my buddy in town with me. He was working as a surf guide. Um, he's actually from New Jersey and he was down there working as a surf guide, um, taking people surfing and stuff for me. And I said, come on, jump on the boat. Let's go fish. He loves fishing. He, uh, he jumped in and, uh, we were up there drinking bloody Mary's and coming around the corner, left the Harbor and Apia. And there was a bunch of tunas going crazy. They were all over the place. And, uh, so we went over, he really wanted to catch a big ahi, but so I had some smaller stuff out back and then I had some bigger things in close and I had my big teasers and I had those pancake reel, uh, hand, hand teasers up there in the bridge. Yes, exactly, man. Oh, those things have kicked my ass so many times. <laughs> I don't use that anymore. But anyways, we came, um, came around one of the big yellowfin schools and, uh, I was noticing some bigger splashes than usual, like different type of tuna splash, like, like something feeding on them. So anyways, we went right around the tuna school and this big thing came up on my BART lunch teaser and got me pretty good on the pancake grill. I got it away. Fish kind of disappeared. We're like looking around and then it piled on that blue breakfast and, uh, and it was on, you know, and nice. it jumped and like right away. I was like, Ooh, that fish is like eight fifty or something. I didn't think it was a grander. Um, but, uh, I just thought well, that's a nice fish. And we'd actually just a little bit prior caught one on 80 that uh, was five something. And we ended up bringing it in and weighing it. it ended up being the national record because just no one had weighed one like that right, before. Right. Anyways, my th my thing was I was going to let this one go because it wasn't, I didn't think it was a grander and we'd already caught the record. And I was like, ah, we'll just take some pictures, let it go. So I never even pulled gaffs out. Um, and, uh, yeah, we fought it for a while. Sal did a good job and, uh, it was just me, him and my, uh, local crew Pele. And, uh, when we got it up on leader, it came up pretty tired. 
Um, it wasn't fully dead, but it was, it was pretty beat. Like it wasn't, it wasn't going anywhere. Like he didn't have, it wasn't a crazy wiring thing, you know, but when I, when it kind of came up, I had a better look at it and I went, Oh man, this, this fish, we got to take a look at, like, we should, I think this is the one. And so I ran down and we didn't have a gaff. Like we didn't have our flyers ready. I had them down like in the engine room. I'm like, crap. And I like ran down and just like stick gaffed it with a, with a regular stick gaff to pull it up close to the boat. <laughs> and I noticed the hook was like barely, it was like in the, a heart, like right at the base of the bill uh-huh. like up like this. And it was barely in there. And, and then the line was coming through its mouth like this. Um, so it's still stuff. in so, there. Yeah. So it was still in there. But if during that fight that like she'd come at us and the line had come like this, I bet we would have popped it off. Like I bet that we would have pulled the hook. So it was kind of a miracle that happened. Um, but anyway, so I was seeing where the hook was and I was like, man, we need to do something. So I put my, put the little stick gaff in and then, um, I grabbed the, uh, a gaff head and put it in its face, a flying gaff head and just kind of put it through its face or whatever. Right. And we, and, and we were ready to go, but, oh, my, actually my buddy Sal got out of the chair and he's used to like tuna fishing and stuff. And there was like a little rope and he like jumped in and like put a, a tail rope on the thing. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you're crazy, man. I'm not getting in the water. Anyway, so he jumped out, but by the end, I mean, we were all good. And uh <laughs> then, you know, we couldn't get the thing through the door. And this is a big flaw with Cabos, man. That that door, like it sits so on this boat, it sat like a few feet when you were if you weren't completely full on fuel, it sat like a good a good couple feet out of the water i've seen a lot of boats like that even yeah so I'm like you man, gotta pick it up then? yeah it's and it's so it, high just you need you need a lot of people to pull one that big. nice for self-draining but yeah that <laughs> yeah, makes but, sense for sure yeah, you guys sit there with the door open but on a really big fish like my merit it's like a it's it's like a boat ramp you know it goes down into the water yeah. and you can slide anything through it that's but how that mine is too <laughs> yeah i mean that's what you want it's just yeah. so much easier so we couldn't, we were trying to get it through. We got its head through, but we couldn't get any farther. We were trying and there's a little platform there, like a little metal black bracket for like, you can hook a swim step to like a, just like, it's like a pole with a couple steps on it. You can hook it to it if you want. Um, and that was like ripping its face up. So we actually definitely lost some weight on that thing from it, just ripping the face off uh. and, uh, Eventually, I just had had enough trying to get it through the door and said, look, just, just tie it to the back of the boat and drive back. And so we ended up tying it tight to the back of the boat and just uh, drove home. And uh, yeah, we put it up. And I at the time, I was IGFA rep for Samoa. So I had one of those like a certified scale master. Oh, awesome. And I, yeah. So on the scale master, it went like 1,000, either 1,035 or 1,037, something like that. So, but in order for it to be recognized as a national record, it had to go through the Samoa international game fish association. They actually have like a little fishing club there. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so they didn't have a scale big enough to weigh it. So <laughs> we were at the commercial dock and what they did was they measure their, they have like a, a flat scale on the ground. Right. And uh, they would measure like the totes, like they fill the totes up from the commercial boats and put them on it. Right. And so they put a tote on there and teared it out and then put my fish on top of a tote <laughs> and put the tote on there. And the, so the fish is like draped over this tote and the yeah. tote's on. And, and that's where we got 1025. 
I was like, well, that's that'll be the official weight then, whatever. Either way, over a thousand. Either way, it was over a thousand. I <laughs> so yeah. So that was that, man. And I gave the fish to the village there at Solani. I had a I paid for a, a crane truck to come pick it up and they put it in the back of the truck and drove it all the way over to the other side. It's like an hour drive and just said, drop it off in the village. That's awesome. Off in the middle of the village. And I just said, the head, you know, make sure the head, and I want the bill. Make sure you guys save me the bill. Yeah. The and uh, the head, give it to the chief there in, in Solani Village, and the rest just, you know, go down with a knife and cut yourself some fish. That's awesome. You know, I went out to dinner with the boys, and we went out drinking and stuff for a little bit, and I got back home a few hours later, and it was all gone. There wasn't even, there was nothing left, and I got my bill. That bill was sitting there at the resort, and <laughs> everyone was stoked, man. So cool. it's great, That's and it, cool. you know, it fed a bunch of people too, which like made me feel good because i don't it sucks if you kill something that big and then yeah get it wasted. you know yeah. a lot of times those fish just get dumped yeah so um, so it was good and um that was a big turning point for me um especially learning how much drag you can put on these things and how much how much you can trust your tackle like you know sunset drag on a 130 really if your tackle's correct it's not that much pressure on your tackle like you you can handle that like you're right and it's needed on fish like that <laughs> yeah there's moments you need it man and that's what happens with a lot of people they're, they're afraid to put drag on until it's too late and now the fish is dead and now you're you're really in a bad situation so yeah it's figuring that out i think you're it fighting just more elements than just the fish at that point yeah yeah it just takes time to kind of learn that those big fish there's time drag really is that needed for sure but yeah that was the grander man that's cool that was that's that. a really cool catch yeah. i'm yeah. still a little dream of mine but i don't get the fish places where there's a whole lot of them feel like my best shot yeah. is here in jersey <laughs> right yeah when i was in high school my my gym teacher uh they caught one they caught a grander on the heart to heart mr oh, no way it wasn't i mean i don't know when they actually caught it but i know he had caught a grander with okay that he worked on i think it was called the heart to heart and it was many years ago but uh but i know there's I been a few there's definitely been a and, few uh, yeah, so I bet there if pe more people, do you think enough people fish for them at all? Like that's actually the thing. Like we, the biggest one I ever hooked was during a white marlin open, and we were white marlin fishing. We had a, an eighty pitch, but the boat I was uh -huh. on chair. <laughs> I had a great angler, did a great job staying up, and he just didn't, you know, couldn't complete. And it was the biggest fish I ever seen. I mean, I'm not going to say it was there, but I don't yeah. know. I don't, we I were there. we were planning to kill it. I was looking forward to finding out, but once the angler was done, we let it go. We did get the leader twice, and we ended up oh. cutting off. So yeah. it just was over. <laughs> we couldn't yeah. get it close again for another hour. We ended up just trying to break it off. Couldn't even break it off. We had ended up cutting the main line. Yeah, but, you know, it was twenty out circle hook. We were rust out. The fish be all right. They didn't want to yeah. stress out more at that point. We weren't going to do anything with it. Yeah, no, that's great. See it. Go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's the best scenario. So but trying yeah, to catch first kill yeah. is a big difference for sure. Yeah. No. Yeah, all right. Well, how'd you end up with how Kona even come into your vision? Yeah. Um, so I mean, I've always known about Kona. Obviously, like everyone that fishes knows about Kona. There's Absolutely. just so much history there. And um you know, now that I fish there and stuff, I mean, it, it is kind of almost like cheating in some ways. Like you leave <laughs> the harbor and start fishing. It's flat, calm. That is still cool. in America. Like I can go fish all day 
and barely break a sweat, come home, you know, and the majority of guys are pulling lures. Like it's such, it's so easy. You just set your lures and your taglines and you just set up and you get right. bit. That's it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, obviously there's a work involved, but it's not in terms of other fisheries. It's, it's, it's totally, you know, it's like, it, it's really nice. The works <laughs> and the, really... the rigging and the boat maintenance, not in the yeah. rigging baits and all yeah, that. Yeah. Once, once you're in the process, like it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's obviously it's still, you got to work hard, but it's not, it's not like running out on the East coast and rigging yeah. hundreds of baits and, doing all this shit and you know it's not like that at all it's a very sustainable daily fishery (laughs) yeah so it's nice you know if you're if you're somebody after you like that you're getting older or something or you want to have a family or you just want to you know be able to come home every day it's pretty and catch and have the potential to catch big blue marlin it's i haven't seen anywhere comparable in the usa at least really like that um so you know all the stories i heard were pretty true like it's it's a it's pretty amazing um, and there's surf there and there's like yeah. really nice people. It's Hawaii, good food, good. Checks yeah, a lot in, of boxes. <laughs> yeah. And you're, it's a lot to be said about being in the USA. So, um, so I kind of always had heard about it and thought that was great. And like, I did the remote fishing and stuff now for a long time and, uh, I was getting pretty burned out on it, man. I mean, just getting fuel is always, you know, was even a nightmare. And then, um, getting uh you know parts and fixing things and flying in mechanics and just like it's just was stressful as hell man and i and and being an owner operator was just like painful i mean i wasn't really making money i ended up selling that cabo to a guy in fiji and then getting the little 37 merit and then uh that's a pretty little boat at 37 yeah i love it man i love it so ended up with that 37 um and i what we were trying to do was we built a little dock around the corner there where the resort is and i set up a little thing and we we're going to run it out of there and um i built a little zone with little pumps to try and even pump fuel in to the boat wow. and pump water and it was it was pretty cool actually but it was it was a, it was stressful as hell it was a lot of work and uh you know getting in and out of that reef pass you couldn't do it with the cabo it was too shallow but with the 37 you could get in and out of the reef pass at the resort so the Cabo, I had to run out of the city there in Apia, which was uh, about an hour drive where the 37, I could around the corner, I dug out a little area in the mud there inside the reef and we built a, built a break wall and we, we actually did quite a lot. It was going to be a pretty sick setup and oh, that's cool for about a year there like that. And then, uh, uh, my wife at the time, me and her, we ended up splitting up and that you know went through the whole divorce process and that kind of made things in Samoa a little more it just kind of put a bad taste in my mouth for a little while and we had some you know as it goes it wasn't great so right. you know I was kind of looking at what I was going to do and uh I I just kind of wanted a break at that point I was just burned out and I've been living off out in all these super remote places for a really long time you know, yeah, I was just like, man, I need a change here. Um, and we had a lot of guys that came through the surf resort to surf from, from Kona. So I made a lot of friends, um, that lived on big Island Okay, and not fishermen, but, uh, I actually made pretty good friends with OB. Uh, he fishes on the, with the bad company guys. So he was the first like really good fisherman. I made pretty good friends with there and, um, in Kona and stuff, but I met, he came down there on a surf trip and we got friendly and, I asked him if he could find me a job. And then, um, I had, uh, two other guys from Kona actually come and work for me down there. I had Mikey, uh, who he just caught a grander this year, actually in Kona. 
And then uh, I had Ryan O'Halloran and those guys fished for, for, for me. And, and they were like been fishing in Kona for a long time too. So yeah. So anyways, I basically, yeah, I was going through a divorce, didn't know what to do. And then me and my ex-wife were like doing things where, you know, uh, she would come and stay at the resort for a few months and I would leave. And then, you know, I'd come back and she would leave. And as we were trying to figure out how we were going to do all this and, right. you know, eventually she moved back to Australia and stuff, but, you know, it's kind of that beginning stage of what we were doing. And um, so I had some time that I was just going to leave the resort and do whatever. And uh, so Mikey set it up. I could, uh, I got to go over and fish on the um, Kona Blue. So Kona Blue, yeah, Kona Blue. So I did a uh, the tournament season there in the summer, and uh, we didn't have great fishing, but I saw the potential, and I just was like, man, I was like, I just fell in love with Kona. I'd been there many years before, just like to check it out and uh, just to be there and see it all. And we were just spending some time, and I I thought back then I was like, I'm gonna end up here one day. I just felt it. Uh, but my wife at the time was like, no, absolutely not. I don't want to live in Hawaii. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, so I just, man, it just, some places they just, you just, they, you just get there and you just like, no, like this is home. Like I just got there and I just breathed it in and I just felt it. And I just felt a real connection to the place and the people. Wow. And, um, there's nowhere else in Hawaii I would ever live. If think if the big Island didn't exist, I wouldn't live in Hawaii, um, okay. but the big island is like, it's very self-governed and it's very like it's not overrun with tourists. It's, it's, it's like a small town. It's a big Island, but it's a small town, you know? And it's like a, you kind of feel like it's country style back there. It's, it's really pretty, pretty special. So, you know, I, I love that feeling to it and living in Samoa and all these remote islands for so long. Um, there was no way I could just go back and move to like the mainland or something and just, and just get into yeah. that. I just couldn't do it. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so basically long story short, figured out a way to get that uh oh joe joe byram um jables photography he uh who was actually who was my crew in conerfall he sent me a message uh an email and said hey i've been watching all the stuff you're doing i read an article about you marlin blah 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 he's like he was in the film industry uh like hollywood stuff for a long time and he was doing a lot of like personal assistant work for a bunch of like um celebrities and he was just he loved fishing but he's um he was burned out on, he's from I think Moorhead city or some Moorhead somewhere. But so he fished out of that area a bit, but he was just burned out, wanted to get into fishing and was like, he's like, you know, I'd love to come down and like spend a season and shoot video and like put together like a really good fishing movie and like, you know, get involved and maybe I could like second crew or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know? Um, so I said, well, look, man, I'm like, I'm kind of done with Samoa. I said, I'm actually trying to figure, I put that merit up for sale and I was probably just going to get out of fishing or maybe go run someone else's boat or whatever, right. you know, but no one wanted to buy it in that part of the world. It's just not a boat that's really applicable to that part. Like no, the only really. <laughs> now, you know, I could send it to Australia, but like, it's just going to fall apart. It's too rough. So nobody wanted it over there. Right. You know, you might've found the right buyer, like somewhere on the gold coast that might've just ran it through the intercoastal areas and just like, uh -huh like just a cruise boat just to hang on but it just wasn't it just didn't nobody knows what a 30 they just didn't know you know what it right, was right. or was capable of and it's not a good boat for rough weather so <laughs> um joe sent me emails like and i was like man i'm i'm uh i'm about to get out of samoa I said, but look if you're interested um i was selling the boat but look if you wanted to come in as like an investor help me ship this boat to hawaii 
help me get set up there, you know, and I'll, you know, we'll set up a loan structure, whatever it is. And, uh, you can come fish with me over there, man. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know if it would work out. And then I was in Florida visiting my mom and, um, he was just down the coast and I was like, Hey, let's meet up for, you know, let's meet up and, and talk story at sailfish Marina and, and, and talk about this, this, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Let's meet up and talk. And I was like, okay, you know, let's meet up in person. So right. I, I remember pulling up in a sailfish Marina and walking in and I'd never seen Joe, what he looked like or anything. And kind of looks like a hippie dude he's got like long hair and a beard and i walked in i'm like no way this guy is not gonna be invested in this like what the <laughs> we sat and had a few beers and man he's like i don't know if you ever met joe he's a really good dude man nah, I don't think I have. yeah he's he's just a really really good dude so anyways we uh we end up being you know close friends and stuff and yeah but long story short he did invest in it we got the boat over there to kona and uh he came in and did like second crew for the first, I think it was like the first two seasons maybe. Um, and he just kind of shot photos and like, um, but my crew was always wiring the fish and stuff. And then, uh, something happened. My crew couldn't make it for a bunch of charters. And I was like, Joe, you ready, man? And he's like, yeah, I'm ready. And, uh, wired his first fish. And then that was it. And and we fished together as, uh, you know, we fished together for a bunch of years after that. But, uh, um is that what kind of catapulted you into doing content yourself and doing visions yeah yeah well while we were there you know he was shooting photos and i saw how much people loved that and then um you know he had like his little gopros and stuff like that he would just get some head mount footage or whatever and then right um, i think we went through like a a slower period or something and i started thinking about um trying to do something different or whatever, you know, and I, I saw a lot of like the surfers were doing, um, vlogs, you know, like these vlog things. Yeah. And I got real popular. Yeah. Doing doing it myself. Watch all these surf. Yeah. Same thing as snowboarders. I'm like, that's pretty cool. Like that's exactly what it was. It's actually fun to do. And I was like, these guys are just, it's nothing crazy, but it's, I'm enjoying watching this. And I found myself looking forward to them putting episodes out. And I'm like, man, I should do, something like this for fishing like i haven't really found anything quite like this and like the fishing shows every time i watch a fishing show like the ones on tv especially like the big game stuff it's like painful to watch sometimes (laughs) it's like it's like it's fake it's like it's just like ah man i just want the real you know there's some i remember there were a few that were pretty authentic back in the day but like yeah i mean i don't know i was just like man there's got to be something better and uh yeah, I mean, all that stuff was just like I kind of <laughs> wanted to do something just different, you know, and, yeah. and be a little more authentic. And uh, but anyway, yeah, back to visions of granders. Yeah, so I had contacts at Marlin, um, and I'd I'd helped Jen with done, done some articles and stuff like that. And yeah, I just sent them a message. I didn't think they would really be interested, but I was like, it'd be great to uh, to have them kind of back me on this. And it's uh, cool. I got that. It's, yeah, and it and, adds uh, to it. I was nervous doing it because I'm like, especially in Kona, man, like, and, and this was an ammunition. This was going to give all these guys a lot of ammunition, you know, and all this. And, uh, you know, still to this day, there's definitely guys in that Harbor, especially some of the old guys that probably just don't like me because I do stuff on video. You know, I put right. stuff out there. I do con. It's just but how it, it is. At the end it's of what the day, it is. it's great promotion for. Yeah. Kona. I mean, that's the way I looked at it. I'm like, man, you're not paying my mortgage. You're not paying for my kids to go to school. Like I, I, I need to, you know, this is what I do to do, yeah. you know, like I'm, 
I'm sorry, but this is how I'm going to do it. And be cool, be nice to people, be friendly, not talk crap and just like yeah. try and be at that level because I see the other side so much that it's like, it's really a sour end of this sport of fishing where you see that, where it's like someone catches a good fish and immediately there's always these guys that are like, oh, it wasn't that big or, oh, you know, they caught that it like social media is great at showing know, that. Or, oh, <laughs> they let it die and they did this and it's like, who cares? Let them have their moment, you know, they, yeah. they did a good job, like good for them. You know, they had a great, like, isn't that what this is all about? We're all, you know, trying to do the best we can and enjoy life. <laughs> what we love to do. It's a passion, you know? Yeah. So I think once I started to stop really caring about that was when I, I don't know, life and fishing got a little bit better for me. That's for sure. But, <laughs> so, but when I first started, I was like, so scared, like, oh man, I'm going to put this stuff out here and everyone's going to laugh at me and think it's so silly. But I'm like, if it's got the Marlin tag, Marlin magazine tag to it and they're promoting it a little bit like okay that's going to give us some give me a little bit of clout there you know and uh for sure for sure and they did it and uh originally the way it was going to be was we were going to just film it and send it to an editor and um we tried with like the editors are so expensive man and uh we were found likely a guy. it won't be the way you want it anyway yeah and we found a guy in the philippines that was going to do it for us like for a decent price and uh so we went to go do that, but it was just, it, it, you're just, they don't get it, you know, no, so, it, it shines a, the wrong light. Like no. trying to shine on so it. I just downloaded a program. I downloaded Adobe premiere pro and, uh, I just watched a lot of YouTube videos on how to use it. And the first, you know, the first few things I made were extremely frustrating and, you know, when I, I lost about vlog style though. It's not a lot of hard edits. So that part yeah. is kind of nice. Like it's it's a good, it's actually a great thing to learn how to edit through. Yeah. Editing a blog. I feel like, yeah, yeah. So it, and the thing with YouTube and stuff and like, you can just type on like, how do I do this in Adobe Premiere? Oh, I lost my sequence. How do I find it again? And whatever. Yeah, and there's it's great. somebody's making a video about how to do it. And so over the years of doing this now, it's, it's been a few years. I've, I've gotten pretty good at Adobe and doing different little hacks with it and stuff. It's that, fun. It yeah, I, fun. I actually really enjoy it, man. It's like, yeah. I enjoy it as much as fishing. I, I mean, I don't really like doing the editing so much because it takes so much time and you're sitting there, but like putting together a product and then watching it and like bringing that content to people has been really rewarding for me. And more rewarding is the messages I'm like, I get from people and like the responses I've got from people, um, you know, not really so much in Kona, but like the rest of the world. And like, people will shoot me messages and be like, dude, like you get me through the winners or like, Hey, I was <laughs> doing that, whatever. Like, Hey, I followed this tip you said, and I caught my biggest fish or whatever. Like the best ones just, for me are you, your videos got me into all shore fishing. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Like that, that's, the coolest it's thing huge. even if it's like yeah. one person you know it's still worth it it's super yeah it's really rewarding you know um it's good so you're giving a bit back and i enjoy it i'm gonna keep doing it as long as i fish and just kind of slowly get better i think at it but uh yeah i mean that's kind of where where that went and uh yeah I mean, that's kind of where we're where we're at let's talk about the Kona seasons. Like what, what can you expect throughout the year starting in January and in December? Like how, yeah. how do you um, fish? Well, when you target? I mean, tar you're a blue Marlin fisherman when you're there, Yeah, right? but what yes. else can be caught throughout the year? And oh, what yeah. is blue Marlin fishing? So it's actually, Kona is actually a pretty diverse fishery. 
um, you know, like I, I think a lot of people just focus on the Marlin fishing and you just hear about the Marlin fishing because it is such a draw. Um, and it is such a special thing, but like, there's, there's a lot of other, there's a lot of other things that can be done there. And there's guys that kind of specialize in it, but you know, really, if you're going to come to Kona, um, I wouldn't come there. I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't spend the money to go there and go fish for mahis or something like that. Like it would, if you go to Kona, like go there and put the time in and try and catch some blue marlin. But there are guys that do different things and there are other species there. Obviously, I mean, it is Hawaii, it's Pacific Ocean. So, you know, the mahi, the mahi bite for us, I don't even know if I'd call it a bite, but they're around all the time, really, but more so in the winter. But the way the mahis are there, it's like you got to find something. You got to find a, a net, floating. you got to find a floating debris. Catching them in the blind, trolling around there just doesn't happen very often. Yeah very rare or if you do catch one in the blind you do a circle back and all of a sudden you'll find something floating there and that's you thought you were in the blind but you're not right. so it's pretty rare the other hawaiian islands are different there's a lot more wind there's a lot more flying fish there's a lot more it's just a different fishery and there's mahis there so like if you're after meat fish and stuff and you're going to hawaii i would say go to like oahu or Kauai. okay um, and and go out and fish with those guys and you'll fill up coolers and stuff like that um <laughs> or you know in kona it's just there's a few guys that that's what they specialize in and they catch baits and they got like their little apelu fads where they catch their baits and they go out and they just they specialize in just bending a rod and catching fish and they're good at it right uh, i don't think i would come to kona to do it but if you're there like on vacation and you just you don't really care about marlin you caught a bunch of them you're like yeah whatever then I would hit up one of those guys and just go out there and just freaking catch some stuff. But, you know, seasonally Kona's a, you know, there's the, there's the general season outline that's just, you know, year in and year out, you kind of base off of, but then like, like for instance, January is the winter. It's kind of off season. Right. But last January was like the best fishing Kona's almost ever seen. They had a bite for like two weeks. That was just, I was in dry dock and but i <laughs> yeah because january i'm like whatever let me get my stuff done and uh like right yeah, now was, we have epic bluefin tuna fishing right off the beach and i'm i have two boats at my disposal and i can't go anywhere with either of them right now uh, <laughs> both of them yeah. a lot of work done to them <laughs> well, yeah i mean so it's tough to say like hey you're never going to catch these in this time of year because like yeah january was nuts but generally what i would say is like our spring months seem to be for whatever reason, when you'll, when you generally see those monsters. Um, I mean, you know, if you looked at the stats, I think like July might be the month, July or August might be the month with the most granders. I could be off on that. I wouldn't quote me on that, but definitely. You think like, that's because there's more people targeting them then? Is that I think, something Yeah, or? consistently there's more people fishing yeah. for sure. J the month of July, almost every boat's fishing. Um, yeah. There's also, you know, usually that's just consistent fishing. That's usually like one of the hottest months. Okay. Um, but that like early season, uh, March, April, May, probably the worst weather we get there in Kona. Like you actually have days that can get rough and you have days where there's like big Northwest come through and, and, uh, or like West swells and it like the Harbor entrance gets nasty and stuff too. Uh, just you get out. Um, but, uh, those months is usually when you'll encounter like giant ones. Um, but the fishing can be painful then like you don't see anything, but then you'll see like a 900 pounder or something that breaks you off. Or like, usually that's when the stories, that's when you hear stories about 
just unstoppable fish, you know, really big okay. ones. And this year, my two biggest fish were early season, like that April, May time. So that's usually pretty, pretty, pretty consistent that like that. And usually get a little run of spear fish, short bills in that spring too, which can be that's good. That's when they're usually there in the springtime. They're, they'll be there through the whole summer, but sometimes in that first part when you can get like a good run, they're weird, man. They're hard to, cause I get a lot of guys that fish with me for the spear fish just to finish their slams that right. slam. And, uh, it's hard to time and, you know, they'll, they'll show up and they'll be there for, and they'll be thick as thieves. They'll be everywhere. And then overnight they're just gone. I can't, they're, they're weird. They just do their thing, whatever it is. Um, and some years we have a lot of them. Some years we don't this year, we didn't have a lot of, them. um, but you'll, they'll be all the, they'll be there year round. But you're, if you're, if somebody's coming to try and complete a slam, I'm telling them to book in the spring. Right. Okay. Uh, usually, yeah. Or June. But yeah, so that first half, that springtime is usually you got to put your time in and you may have some weather days, but usually you can encounter one well over 500 at that time of year. Like that's right. when you're going to see some real big ones. And then, um, yeah, June, July is just like your most popular months of the year. You know, all our tournaments are in July. We run that whole month. It's just like tournament after tournament. Um, and there's just consistently good fish there. Uh, and then when the rats move in, like the smaller blues, you can get consistent fishing. Um, this year was terrible, but generally, you know, in that June, July period, you're usually going like two for three or three for four. All right. Um, Action for sure. Yeah. You're catching fish, you know, and then, you know, maybe every like fifth, fifth or sixth fish is over 500. Um, That's awesome. You can get a little run, you know, usually a good boat through the, through our season talking spring, summer, fall. Um, I think this will change now with the sonars. Uh, but in the past, a good boat would do about like 10 or 11 over 500, All right. um, through, um, through the summer period, you know, um, before the armies came out, what was like a good season in, in Kona? How many, how many blues released? Oh, over, over a year. Over a full year. Uh, I think you could be anywhere in that 80 to a hundred awesome. uh, area. Yeah. Just that depends every year is a little different, but, uh, I think around there, you know, but Kona is not really a numbers, numbers right. spot. You're looking for big ones and that's just kind of how it is. And that, that can be a little tough to explain to people because they come here and they may fish like Costa Rica or somewhere. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you're there for a big one. You're like on an elk hunt, you know, you're looking yeah. for them. And there's a lot of times there's not a lot in between, you know, unless you change up your whole deal and go chase tunas or something like you could drive around four days without a bite. You could totally do it. I mean, you could yeah. without even lockdown. I mean, I've gone, I've gone like eight or nine days without catching a blue Marlin for sure. It happens. Yeah. I mean, it can be that way. It's like, it can be deathly slow. If the current's not right and things are weird, like we're just a big rock out in the middle of the Pacific. They're not like resident Marlin. I don't believe right. I, they come through and they leave and they come through and they leave. You get waves of big fish and then they leave and they come in and, you know, maybe if they're there spawning, they're there for a little bit longer, but if all the elements aren't correct and the current's not pulling it in, they'll, they'll go hang out on the seamounts instead, or they'll go somewhere that's more ideal and, uh, and they just won't be there and, or, or they'll just be hard to find. They won't be where they're supposed to be. Right. Um, you know, so it makes it hard, but when, you know, when the current's consistent and, and that's what you want there, you want a really consistent weather pattern and consistent current. And it's not like the Gulf stream on the East coast where you have the Gulf streams doing one thing all the time and then does little eddies and different right, things like, right. but like for us, 
you could go and fish one day and the current could be a really strong North current. You can go to bed and you wake up the next day and it's a South and in current just switches. So it switches all the time. I mean, it just does what it's, but like when you have that consistent, so if it's like a consistent North and in current for like a week, everything starts to stack up in those spots that you like to fish on that current. It's all bottom structure. We're fishing it. The bottoms are crazy there, you know, big, big choke points, big mountains, all kinds of stuff and all enclosed to the Island. I bet. So, so our currents, it's almost like bottom fishing. Like you're really like working structure off currents and where that upwelling is going to be. So if our current's garbage, you're kind of like, what do I do now? Or if the current goes weird and sometimes you even get the shit where the current's doing one thing on the surface and another thing underneath. And you can't even figure that out until you either yeah. are hooked to a fish and it goes down and does something weird. Or you look at your buoys, you can go over to one of the buoys and check it out. Can you see um, a good thermocline out there if you dial up your transducer? Sometimes, yeah, if you're really, if you're really interested uh, and you, yeah, if you really, if you, if you really tune in on your thing, I, but I don't see it very often. Yeah, it can be tough to figure out. Um, but yeah, I mean. That makes it difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of current, dude. I mean. I feel like you could go, I mean, I feel like you could go out there and if you just had a plotter, you didn't, and not even a sounder, just a plotter and you knew what your current was doing, you have a fair idea where you want to fish and work that zone, you know, but it just, it, it goes with, uh, you know, it's kind of like we're saying about the Omni too. Like, it's just like you, you have to know, like I have my certain spots that I know in a certain time of year. And if the current's doing this, I know she's going to be in there and, right. and I will work that spot for four hours, five hours. I will work it for a while. I may leave when the current's doing something or when the tide's doing something a little weird, but I'm back there on my tide changes and I know she's in there somewhere and I'll work that area and won't even see anything. You won't see much life. You might mark a little things, but I just know that she's going to be in there or kind of be coming in there. Right. And that's the difference between somebody, you know, just doing that a long enough time or, you know, putting in the years where somebody that isn't put in the years and they might do one or two passes and say, well, we didn't get bit. We did one or two passes and then they move on to somewhere else. And now that person with that mindset who couldn't catch that many big fish, because that's the mindset and Kona you have to have to catch big fish is, is to really know like, and confident my spots, there's going to, I'm going to get one in this zone and I'm going to stay here. Sounds a lot I'm- like the equivalent to big eye fishing here. Certain zones, certain spots, especially in certain yeah. the water hit, and that's where you're going to camp out, especially in tournaments, yeah. and you're just going to wait and circle all day long, hoping yep. you get that big bite. Yeah, and sometimes you don't get it, but if you, like, you know, like, this is where I know it's going to be, and a lot of times it pays off. Yeah. And the worst is if you leave, you doubt yourself. <laughs> and you know, or somebody calls you and says, Hey, I just, you know, it's starting to bite up here and you go and chase a bite and someone comes in and catches an 800 pounder in there. And you're like, <laughs> so been there. I just don't even, I don't call people and be like, where, where's it biting? Where's it? I just go and do my thing and <laughs> if it pays off. It pays off. But that was, that was one thing that's a little bit annoying because that was an advantage I felt like I had because I, had the confidence and the patience to wait it out and and we did very well big fish number wise in the fleet every year um because of that mindset you know i may have not right. caught the most small fish or i may not have caught the most bycatch but in terms of big fish right up there every year with the top and now with the sonars it's a whole different thing because you do 
you know, an hour in one zone, you can pretty much tell if there's one in there or not. Right. And on your way or whatever. So Kona really seems like a, a special fishery and somewhere I've yeah. always wanted to go. I was hoping to make it last year. And, you know, life has had different plans, but yeah, you'll, you'll have to check it out sometime, man. I mean, just the historical part of it. Like if you really love fishing and just yeah. see it all. And uh, to me, like Kona Madeira and Cape Verde are like still in Australia. I would love to see the Great Barrier Reef and do that, but yep. I don't know how Those are pretty much my bucket list too, man. Yeah. Azores. I'd like to get to the Azores. Oh, yeah, Azores had a lot of hype this year, that's for sure. Yeah. Nope. There's so many of those spots. I don't know if I'll ever get there at this point, but yeah, you know, me too. Whatever. I I just uh I, I do love fishing in Kona for sure, though. I, I do enjoy it when the bite's on and the big ones are around. It's when you have a special day there and you catch catch a real nice one and you know, you're back in by two, three o'clock. And yeah. It's just so nice, man. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, let's talk about GZ Lures. What do you have yeah, going sure. with that? Partners well, with I'm partners with Cole, um, and he okay. founded the company. Um, so long to uh, a ways back, he he's he's always loved fishing and stuff, but he's never really been like a big game fisherman. Um, and uh, anyhow, he had a friend that was, and they somehow saw the value in these custom handmade trolling lures, and. Uh, so he was just doing this as like a little side thing and they would use it to pay for their fishing trips. And, uh, he would just buy lures on eBay or wherever, or go to, you know, however he found them, whatever, and then, and then resell them and sell them on eBay and sell them however. And it just started to grow and grow and grow. And then he started actually contacting the actual lure makers and saying, Hey, you know, I'm starting to get a bit of a following here. And, um, you know, the good thing about Cole is he's like, he's really, customer oriented like he's really good with customer service he's really good like talking with people putting the time in i mean he'll spend all day talking to one dude on the phone on and off <laughs> about stuff like he's he's really good at that like he's does is passionate about it so i think that's why so many people you know wanted to work with him and and especially like the lure makers because he was always like quick to pay them you know, there was no, there was no funny or weird stuff going on. You know, right. there's other guys that there's always some weird business stuff going on and, you know, he treated, treated everyone good and, and it, and it reflected and the business started to grow, but it got to a point where, you know, he's not a, he's not a Marlin fisherman. So he was like, look, I can't go any farther where I'm at. I can, but at this point I'll be bullshitting and I don't want my company to be based off that. So right. it was right around COVID time and I was off work because everything was closed down in, in Hawaii. So um, he contacted me and said, hey, would you work with me to uh, put together content, help me find product, help me put my website together, you know, just basically be like, show me what needs to be done here and I'll put it together and we'll do this. And uh, so he was just paying me. I wasn't an owner or anything. I was just getting paid. And, and it really helped me at that time. I was like, weeks away from having to sell everything you know sell the boat and everything right, and yeah no it. it was scary i was like what am i gonna do yeah I just stepped I, into this thing spent everything yeah. <laughs> and i couldn't scary even get to it yeah <laughs> so it was it was a lifesaver for me at the time yeah we just continued to grow that way and then one of my fishing started up we just continued to work and kind of come up with creative ways to you know promote the business and uh yeah it just kept growing kept growing and i i thought to myself, you know, this is something 
I could see myself doing long term. You know, this is something, you know, as a sport fishing, you know, especially an owner opera captain, like you you kind of I think it's smart to look at other options, like or at least have side plans or ideas if things don't work out or what you might fall back to or have little investments or whatever, right? Because I've seen the other side of some guys that were phenomenal fishermen and now they're like unemployed and they're like, I don't know what they're doing. And it's just like, man, I I I don't I need to like diversify or think about this. And it seemed like a great opportunity. It started to grow. And I thought, Hmm, this could be something. And then this, this year in particular with the sonar stuff going on and things changing and everything, I was like, man, I, I'm, I think I need to like, kind of have a, have a, have something, something else going on. And I I think, I I think I want to run into this thing full time with Cole and see if we can make go of this and, and make it, uh, and make it, you know, our, our, our full-time job and, and ideally be able to make that my full-time job and just fish like my favorite clients and just fish just to fish. Cause I love to do it and not cause I have to pay bills. And, um, I mean, you're an owner operator, you understand it's just We're like, the it's exact same page. and then you think you're, you know, you're finally getting ahead and then something breaks and there goes everything. And it's like, Oh man, so it's yeah. tough. You do it because you love to do it. And, and my love's my love for it started to fade a little bit with some of the stuff going on. So I was like, this could be a great opportunity. So I wanted to, you know, I said, let's do this, you know, let's become partners in the company. And um, so I came in as a, as a, a partner with him in the company as a part owner. And um, we're going to grow this company and try and see, see where we can go with it. Uh, we have a lot of ideas and and it's exciting. And both of us, like I'm really passionate about fishing and like, my like when you know we were talking about the videos and stuff and like getting messages from people that were like hey I, thanks for the video it got me into sport fishing or thanks for this tip that you said or whatever it caught my biggest fish or whatever or just hey thank you you know you get me through my office day work and you know my day job sitting in for the sure. office you know and and those things have been so rewarding to me like i just i thrive off that and then in this business i get the same thing because i'm constantly talking to customers like hey design me like a six lower spread to pull in the mid Atlantic or design me a six lower spread to pull here or this, or what should I do here? Uh, I really want to get into lure fishing. I've been always baiting, you know, fishing and I want to change it up. And, um, and then I'll get a message from them like a couple months later with a picture of like a 600 pounder or something or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's I, awesome. I, it, it's awesome. So I get that, that like thriving off that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, our, our whole goal is to build it like I, I you know, I don't want to say Melton because that's such a different animal there. Melton, it's like they sell kayaks, they sell everything. Right. You know, yeah. but but we want to be, a, a you know, we want to grow to the point where we're selling all tackle. But I don't want to be and, and Colin are on the same page of this. We don't want to be a situation where we sell like five different types of line and like five different um, hook companies like we want to find oh, what you believe in. Yes. And what like people in the industry are backing and every, the professional people are using. So like we only sell food hooks and that may change over time. I don't know, but right now they seem to be the superior trolling hook. I don't know anything out there better personally, but that obviously could always change. And like, you know, line um, we're, we're getting into that where we want to sell Amalon and, you know, leader material, the Momoi is like really the brand we're pushing. Um, so you know, and, but we are heavily Marlin based, like big game fishing based, you know, we definitely have stuff for like Mahis and things like that. And right. now we're starting to get into the, uh, the stuff for high speed Wahoo trolling and stuff like, you know, things like that. But like, 
we're not going to be selling rigs to go catch, you know, um, trout in the intercoastal or you know, <laughs> snook or something like that. Yeah. Like, I don't, that's a ways out before we ever go down those roads. It's yeah. yeah. But our whole thought was like, why don't we design this where we focus really big on customer service? Um, because there's a lot of people doing online tackle shops and they're, there's, they're great. You know, Tracy Melton, he's a legend. And I mean, he's amazing, but like where we can find our differences, if we can strive to just give the best customer service we can, and then like also provide what we think is the best thing in the industry. And then also being connected in the industry. Cause I'm fishing all the time. Like as a professional fisherman, I know like the newer things coming out or the things people are really starting to like that we could then start carrying and like, you know, little tips that people are starting to do and this and that. So it's, I think we have that benefit. And, um, you know, that's the thing about like, you know, growing up this uh, pro staff and, or like pro team as well and getting people in different areas of the fishing and saying, Hey, you know, you should start carrying this. This is what we've been doing really well on here and wherever, you know, and moving on to like a couple of the other things, like I talked to you about and, you know, right. some of the stuff we're going to be doing and yeah, it's just, we're going to kind of have fun with it and get creative and, 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 you know, try and provide some good stuff to the industry too. Like I'd love to be able to be a thing where we have a lot of people putting up like how to videos and all kinds of different things to be like a positive influence in what we're doing in general. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's where we're at. And, you know, I, I, I have, I have a lot of faith in it. I think we're going to do well. Um, I'm excited to kind of focus on that and, you know, I'm still going to fish. I'm still going to do my charters, but I'm definitely going to take some time. You know, I got two kids that are growing up way too fast and <laughs> not seeing them that much. And man, I'm sport fishing as good as it's been for me. It's also, I've had a lot of, a lot of things have happened because of the time I put into that and neglected other things. So I think I'm going to just like try and, and, uh, find that balance, it. man. Oh yeah. Finding the yeah. balance. That's the key, right? Yeah. It's so not that easy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. So, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. You know, um, I, I, I think it's exciting. It's a good, good little Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. always good to have something else like new ventures or keep you going. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So at this point and, uh, yeah, I mean, anyone want to check it out, they can just go on gzlores.com and, um, got a pretty badass website and, uh, we're, we're actually changing the name to GZ Tackle Co because we're not just selling lures. Right, um, right. I, I saw a lot of confusion for, for a while. People were like, oh, it's just GZ lures. And then a lot of people thought we were making our own lures, which well, we're not making. Actually, that's yeah. up until not too long ago. I, you know, that's what I thought too. I just thought, yeah. you know. That was so I think the name there. confused a lot of people. Yeah, because uh, because they thought, oh, GZ lures. And, and they, you know, I, I'll even have people contact me now that they saw I'm a partner and be like, oh, I want to try your lures. Like you're making lures. I'm like, no, 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 we're not. We're not making lures. We're selling like the best lures and you know the best right. handcrafted lures, the best lures on the market. We are getting into a, a stage where we actually are going to start manufacturing some products. Um, That's but, cool. Uh, yeah, I mean it's not going to be really like we're not going to compete with the handcrafted trolling lures because like these guys are artists and we wouldn't. I wouldn't want to disrespect these guys like they've just done so much. And yeah, I have sure. respect for that hand handmade lures. It's pretty badass. But uh, we're going to be doing different little products and different things. We got some ideas and some stuff coming out, different teaser things and nice awesome. and some cool stuff, you know. But it is really hard to find to manufacture within the USA, and 
it's something I've been adamant about because so much stuff is going to China and uh, it's hard, dude. It's hard. I mean, but uh, well, how can people, how can people find you? How can they follow you and how can they book you? So best thing to do is um, my website, grandermarlin.com, grandermarlin.com. Um, you can view my like availability, all my prices, all the stuff on there. Perfect. Um, and um, yeah, so that's the best thing. Shoot me an email on that or my Instagram is Grander Marlin. Um, and you can message me on that. I'm pretty good with the Instagram. I'm not great on Facebook. I don't check Facebook and Facebook Messenger all that much, but I, I do. But it might be like two days out or something before you'll hear back from me on that. But Instagram is pretty, pretty quick. So yeah, my grandermarlin.com and then Instagram, grandermarlin. I'm, I'm pretty active on there. You'll see a lot of what we're doing, fish reports and all that. And then, um, yeah, gzlures.com. And if you want to, you know, if you want questions about lures or whatever, either hit me up personally or hit us up through the company. And I'm, I, I love talking story about, you know, pulling lures and doing that and whatever. I'm Perfect. always, always around to help. Yeah. If I can, for sure. I'll, I'll put all that info in the show notes and if you guys want to fish in Kona, you should definitely reach out to Chris. Yes. All right. <laughs> oh man. Well, I really appreciate the time. This is awesome. Yeah. I stoked Great, to have man. you on and it was really cool to talk about yeah. you know, Kona, South Pacific, all that stuff, you know, all those areas to me are kind of fabled land and I, I've always wanted to go and it's always cool to hear stories from people that have spent time there. So cool. Thanks, dude. Take care. We'll talk soon. All right. Sounds great. Talk to you. Okay. Take care. See ya. Bye. Well, thank you everyone for listening to episode 31 of the Salty Euphoria podcast. But before we sign off here, we're going to jump into my top yachts of this episode. And we will start with my absolute favorite category, which is custom sport fishing boats that are for sale. And the first one I'm going to mention is this beautiful, beautiful 2001 56 foot Whitaker custom convertible sport fish. It is listed for $2.35 million. Yeah, a little bit of a price tag, but. But looking at the pictures, this boat really is truly one of a kind. I've always kind of had a soft spot for Whitakers. I think they're beautiful. I love the way their windows are. It just kind of has a really special classic look to it. And it's just absolutely gorgeous boat, in my opinion. And if you look at it, if you look at the pictures, you'll see why. It's just pretty boat inside and out. And the interior is really second to none. It just looks absolutely gorgeous, very custom. And it's definitely a boat that you just can't replicate. So, and it actually has newer 1200 horsepower mans. They're putting in 2022. They're the man D3868s. And the boat just seems like it's been very well taken care of due to its list of lots of upgrades recently. So, it's a cool boat. Definitely check that one out. I mean, it's just pretty one to look at whether you want to buy it or not. It's just a pretty boat to look at. Uh, second on this list, which will round out this list, is a 60 foot 1997 Custom Carolina uh, built by Miller Marine. And it's Listed right now for eight hundred forty-nine thousand, which to me is a lot of boat for the money. Sixty-foot boat, boat sixty-foot boat for eight fifty is pretty awesome, and it's powered by a Detroit Diesel twelve V ninety twos, and it really has a lengthy list of recent updates throughout. So it's a really pretty rig with a mezzanine down in our cockpit, and has an absolutely beautiful interior. Really, really cool boat. I think it's a pretty good deal for the money. Again, I'm just going off of what I see online, so you'd have to take it further, but pretty cool boat. Next two boats that I'm going to talk about are sport fishing boats for under 300000 And I really like this one because it's kind of cool. I mean, you, there's definitely some good deals out there for under 300000 from time to time. And we will start with 
this boat for $250,000, the 54-foot 1987 Bertram, and it has 1999 Cat 3412 engines with 3,400 hours on them, and let me tell you, I have Cat 3412s on Euphoria, and they are great, great engines. At 3,400 hours, if they've been well maintained, you know, you should still have quite a few thousand hours left to go, and I've also fished on a 54 Bertram with Joe Trainer for quite a few years in the Bahamas, and it is such a stable platform, great sea boat, and I really like it a lot. So it is an older boat, but it's a really, really good boat, and for $250,000, it's a lot of boat for the money. I mean, any boat you get for under 300000 you pretty much got to go in knowing you're going to be spending some more money to make it right, but boat looks pretty solid and looks good you know inside and out so definitely something worth looking at and especially the 54 footer for a quarter million kind of hard to beat uh, the next one on this list is listed for 299,000 and it is a 47 foot 1998 Viking and it has just 2,500 original hours on twin man 800 horsepower engines and just a really pretty pretty Viking looks like it's been well maintained and taken care of has teak decking throughout the cockpit and it just had an interior refit over the last few years and just looks like a really really great boat for under 300,000 so those are the two for that category and and that's always a fun category to go through our next two boats will fall under the category of top production boat picks and we're going to start with a 2008 64 foot viking that's listed for 1.75 million She's definitely going to fly she has caterpillar c32a's that have just under 4,000 hours on them Beautiful mezzanine. I mean, this boat looks great. It has a sea keeper, lots of recent updates, and it definitely shows that beautiful Viking finish. The second boat will also be a Viking, and it's actually listed with the United Yacht Sales broker Scott White from New Jersey. And this is a 2009 50-foot Viking that looks to be in phenomenal shape. It's listed for 1.2 million, and it has the Man V12s with 1,360 horsepower. So this boat will absolutely fly. <laughs> these engines have just under 4,000 hours on them it has an extensive electronics package and a mezzanine and for a 50 footer it's got a three stateroom two head layout which is pretty awesome to fit all that in a 50 footer so really cool boat for 1.2 million worth looking at and for my last category are fishing center consoles because everybody loves a good center console including myself but this one is one that's a really popular boat. Everybody loves a CV, myself included. And this is a 39-foot CV, a 2009. And right now it's listed for 399000 But it's just a decked-out fishing machine. And it has quad 2023 Mercury Verados with less than 70 hours. I mean, this thing is ready to go. It'll fly. And, I mean... <laughs> you have all new outboards with under 100 hours. It's pretty amazing. So pretty much got a new boat there. And CVs are tried and true vessels and well built. So 2009 is definitely something that will get the job done in my opinion. Now to round it all out, we're going to go with this 34-foot Buddy Davis center console. It's a 2013. I just think that they're really pretty center consoles. This one's listed for uh, just under $290,000. And it has twin 2018 Yamaha 425 horsepowers that only have 650 hours. So you still have some life left in those engines. It's a really pretty looking boat. I know it's a good sea boat. And it has new cushions, new helm seats. And the warranty is good till 2026. So it seems like a really good price and a good fit 
for somebody looking for a great offshore fishing center console. Well, thanks for sticking around for this segment of Top Yachts. Uh, just remember, go to at Captain Ricky Wheeler on my Instagram page, and I will post them on my story, and they will end up in my Top Yachts save story. So you can see a few pictures of them, and let me know if you want to find out more about them, or if you'd like me to help you buy your new boat or sell your boat. But thanks again, and happy holidays, and a happy new year, and I can't wait for 2024. I'll be talking to you then in the next podcast. This was another episode of the Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. If you want to find out more about all the things that were mentioned on this episode, visit saltwatereuphoria.com forward slash podcast. Hit like and subscribe for more big game sport fishing, conversations with other sport fishing enthusiasts, and personal stories from the life of Captain Ricky Wheeler. This is Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. Till next time.